<laughs> Peace and blessings, everybody. Welcome to What Would It Look Like, a Black Liberation podcast from the minds of organic intellectuals, Ebony Isis Booth, that's me, and Jonas, that's you. This is a podcast that takes an approach to solving the perceivably unsolvable issues that face society while prioritizing mental health and sustainability for change makers. On today's episode, we are tackling reparations. And I mean, tackling, mm. maybe we're not tackling it, but we're going to dance with reparations. We're going to mm-hmm. get to know a little bit more about the context and history of reparations and also to dream more deeply into our vision of imagining a world that has not yet been created, but putting one foot inside of it so that we can actually get to a place of realization of these dreams and goals. Right before we started recording, we were you know, kind of having a conversation, a bit of like a pre-production meeting, if you will, Jonas, about what are we doing? You know what I mean? Who are we talking to? Who is our audience? What is the point of this podcast and how we're going into recording this, our third episode, and just kind of taking a pause, an organized break. (laughs) Fifth Um, episode. Y'all just ain't seen two of them. Fifth episode, but keep it going. I'm going to let you finish. There's two two episodes in the the can. That's true. We're going to save those. We're going to save those. But Mm -hmm. um, this, our third published episode we were having this conversation where we're really thinking about like what are we doing and who are we talking to what is the intent for the show how do we incorporate things like branding target audience how to what was the the instructions from the video that you said um how to get more sponsorships and make more money and both of us were kind of like i don't really know if that's Mm. what we're here for yeah a face Which is in our faces scrunched based off a lot of the research that we've been doing this week about economic disparities as they relate to Black folks in this country and globally, but primarily in the United States is where the our focus has been this week. So all of that relates to and ties back to this conversation about reparations. And I'm really excited to get into it because it's really closely tied to the intention of how we got to do the show in the first place. So for those of you who mm-hmm. didn't listen to episode one, Jonas and I decided to start recording our conversations in order to really take a coach approach to tracking how we create and facilitate change in really radical ways that center the liberation of Black people. And Jonas's idea was we should write, I want to be, be responsible for influencing the, the drafting of legislation that would support reparations for Black people for black folks. We started that conversation and I was like, okay, well, let's dream about what that would look like. What would it actually look like? And part of the dreaming about visioning and creating a really scary, terrifying, make your butt fall out size goal is to get clear about just how big the number is, how big the goal is. And then to step back and look at all the things that are in the way. And Mm -hmm. as we've been preparing for these, or as we've been on our journey through these five episodes these past couple of months, there's been a lot of shit in the way (laughs) of even just our visioning and dreaming of this. We had, Mm -hmm. we were surveilled by a a member of dominant cultural, heteropatriarchal, white supremacist, um, a a stalker. We were stalked. Um, Big flex, big flex. (laughs) <laughs> Big flex. Two episodes in already got a stalker. Anyway, shout out to us. Anyway, um, shout out to we us. were stalked. There was also the global warfare and genocide in the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the the murder of eleven thousand civilians. Free Palestine. Free Palestine. Free Palestine. From the river mm-hmm. to the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. 
decolonize and, all that. And what else has been in the way? So we started having this conversation about reparations. And as we're having this conversation about reparations, I think that something else that is in the way is always a foot on my neck saying I ain't shit is capitalism. So there's this interruption mm -hmm. in how we even have these conversations in a way that's aligned with our maybe radical ideologies and views or pro-Black identities when you have to stop and consider how to like create time in the conversation for like commercial breaks and find sponsors that are going to want to fuck with us. You know what I mean? For the purpose of mm -hmm. finding more black people who want to hear what we have to say. So it's a really long mm -hmm. introduction, but I just want to give some context. If you are a new listener here, what, what we are doing and why, and I'm going to take a pause and invite you, Jonas, to kind of share what this brings up with you as we start to traverse the conversation about reparations this week. Well, you know, I, I think one of the things I immediately thought was even how did I get here? How did I get to the point where not only did I believe reparations was necessary or agree with the idea of reparations, but also how like that it was a necessity, like it must happen and, and, and that it was possible. And I think, you know, even maybe a couple of years ago, just really in a political awakening, I've seen the conversation. The conversation has existed before us, obviously. Like there's been, that was a lot of the work and the research that we've done. And for me, I really believe that the idea of reparations became something that I became hyper obsessed and fixated on. And I want to establish something too. As a, the descendant of African immigrants, I don't believe these reparations are for me. I just believe they are fundamental in the nature of black liberation. Black Americans must be made whole as part of the entire operation of Black liberation globally on a Pan-African sense, Pan-African sense. But that realization that ultimately, until this damage is repaired meaningfully, not only is Black liberation somewhat of an impossibility, but also it is the fault line upon which not just this nation rests on, but I believe the world because what we're talking about here is anti-blackness as we've both stated, I believe, and I've heard you say the same, is the single greatest threat to the very existence of humanity. And for that notion, repairing black America, primarily at starting and this nexus of this human massive crime that occurred, what I consider to be the worst crime of humanity in history, which is the transatlantic shadow slavery trade that brought black people throughout the diaspora, that spread black people throughout the world. But here in this nation, the biggest, most powerful nation in the world, its engine is the extraction of free black labor. Mm. And it's still and continues to be. And even if it's not overt, the profit, the profits gained and the wealth gulf created and the continuing profiteering of Black pain, uh, black criminality, black creativity, blackness is extracted still in virtually every aspect without proper recompense. Absolutely. And it's just one of these things that we absolutely, as black people, have to theorize, have to come up with plans for and enact as groups and cohorts collectively. And I believe that I'm seeing a really mass collection of black people. I don't know black people unless they're stricken profoundly with menticide, or as I like to say, you know, the abusive spouse syndrome of being a black American, without, the, everybody agrees, black people need reparations. 
It's just black people and black Americans must be compensated and repaired. Compensation undermines it. Okay. So we're defining reparations as a process of repairing, healing, and restoring a people injured because of their group identity and in violation of their fundamental human rights by governments, corporations, institutions, and families. I want to say that oftentimes the conversation gets derailed because people want to focus on the, or in in many cases that reparations have been, the case for reparations has been made and presented in courts in our judicial system, um, levied by survivors of um, massacres, communities burned down, unjust incarceration, land theft, all manner of different situations where folks, individuals and families have gone and sought recompense for the harms of structural racism as influenced mm-hmm. by the anti-Blackness that you're speaking of, those cases are often considered, well, slavery ended. Slavery is over, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But one thing that I think is important to understand is that the ideology of anti-Blackness is so embedded. Frank Wilderson calls it the genetic material of settler colonialism. Since the mm-hmm. um, invasion of the African continent by imperialists, the uh, extraction, removal, or the kidnapping of Black people who were stolen from Africa and brought to the United States and South Americas or to the uh, to the Americas and throughout the Caribbean. 400 years of chattel enslavement. Following that, we had Reconstruction and the Industrialization era that birthed Jim Crow, which then led to redlining mm-hmm. and the Civil Rights Movement, in addition to foreign interventions up, in, up to and including South African apartheid and the globalization of anti-Blackness throughout sub-Saharan continents and pretty much everybody who is browner than a Caucasian European person. So Mm -hmm. it's not Mm -hmm. (laughs) just about slavery. This is, this Mm -mm. is the reason that critical race theory is being refuted in education. This is the reason that wokeness, um, which is really rooted on the fact once a black person's influences a white person to become aware of this incessant oppression of Black people, they become mm-hmm. awakened mm-hmm. to the reality of the lie that white supremacy has sold. So mm-hmm. when we're having this conversation mm-hmm. about reparations, it's not as simple as cutting a check. We are talking about repairing right. Black people and restoring them to a state of wholeness that they might have been able to experience if it were not for these hundreds of years of structural oppression and systemic oppression mm-hmm. and ideological harm um, and physical violence and mm-hmm. mass. Did I mention, I forgot to mention mass incarceration and the crack epidemic as also. <laughs> which is modern. Yeah. Which is, yeah. You know which is mean? like, you know what I mean? The, the, the ongoing enterprise, the yeah, ongoing so atrocity. Dr. William Darity, shout out. I, listen, that's my new boo. That's my new brain boo. Ah! Dr. Dr. William Darity um, of Duke University is um, the author of From Here to Equality um, and is an economist and sociologist who has done extensive research and been a proponent of reparations as it relates to the necessity of acknowledging, redressing, and providing closure to repair the grievous harm and injustices that have resulted from the United States Um, being the sole beneficiary of the exploitation of Black bodies, Black people in this country.
I like I like that definition. Can we before we go there though? Can we talk first about the Tanahasi Coates uh, essay? And only because to me, that is one of the most powerful acts that brought this conversation to much more of a critical mass uh, level. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that essay and his work and some of his conversations. You know what I mean? Because I think that's a good starting point before we get to Darity. Yeah, for sure. So we're talking about, we'll start there. 2014, ta Coates publishes uh, an in-depth article in The Atlantic called A Case for Reparations, where he gives historical context about many of the systems that I just named mm-hmm. and, and, and also the United States involvement in the issuance of reparations for other demographics mm-hmm. um, throughout history, including Jews as it relates to the formation of Israel and the, the advancement of Zionism. So, and the actual um, slave really owners, including the actual slave owners. And the actual... They received reparations. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that... They did. It's like, y'all didn't know that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I right. think... That, right. Maybe they didn't know that. Tell well, them about it, because maybe people didn't you know, know that. Look. One of the, the great understanding of reparations in America is 40 acres and a mule. You know, everybody sort of understands that. Mm-hmm. And that was originally offered by Sherman to the soldiers. And there's a specific group of people who were promised this land and it was 40 acres. Now the mule was sort of tacked on colloquially. This conversation was, it was never obtusely that, but Andrew Jackson, who immediately became president afterwards and one of the most virulent anti-black people ever, who ever lived, period, no qualifications, immediately rescinded it and then immediately gave reparations to the the lost land of the confederacy to the slave owners mm-hmm. which is how we got sharecropping because instead of turning out the slaves to um to basically starve <laughs> um the slave owners were like well if you want you can come back and work the mm-hmm. land in order to be able to live here so I put air quotes around work the land because they were still cheated out of salary, not or not pay if they were paid at all. So it was basically just for a method of survival. So for a lot of folks, even when we still celebrate Juneteenth, I have I kind of have a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth about mm-hmm. Juneteenth in mm-hmm. in such that like when slavery ended legally, it did not do anything to create any kind of viable infrastructure for formerly enslaved humans to survive. There was no plan for the, there was no contingency plan for what to do with slavery. So America kind of developed its own, like how they say, you know, America, we, Europe hasn't figured out what to do with its, its Jewish problem. Um, America never figured out what to Negro do with problem. its the black Negro problem. problem. They all call it the yeah. Negro problem. They never, the Negro problem. Yeah. The Negro problem. The Negro, Negro problem. problem. So there, there was never a solution for, for us in that. But I, I, I appreciate that that breakdown of like, yeah, forty acres and a mule. But a very interesting thing about mm-hmm. that, um, in Russia, their serf class was given three years, um, or over the course of three years, they were given like something like three hour, three acres of land and tools by which to establish their own parcels um, to reestablish themselves when they were, you know, liberated from their 
uh, serf status. Which is what um, sharecropping that, is. That sharecropping is fundamentally serfdom. Absolutely. But it still didn't come with an acknowledgement, which Darity is saying is the first step. It didn't come with any acknowledgement that you are freed now. It was still to maintain like a beholden status to former slave owners um, and now white male landowners who were back up on their high horses of patriarchy. And back to Juneteenth, one of the things that my understanding of Juneteenth is, and this is something you know, shout out Diallo Kenyatta. He said it shouldn't be a day of celebration. It should be a day of mourning and remembrance because my understanding is it wasn't the day slaves were freed. It was the day they were made aware they were free because they had been free for some time and nobody fucking told them. Two, two and a half years prior. Two and a half years prior. Mm -hmm. So we're celebrating the fact that for two and a half years after Emancipation Proclamation, we had no fucking idea. This mm -hmm. is not a celebratory thing. Mm-mm. It really isn't. And I think when you start to talk about the menticidal element of the transatlantic slave trade, to me, that is perhaps the most intensely and powerful damage that occurred to the black psyche. Because when you when we talk about Afro-pessimism and, and the way they define it, one of the, the positions of permanent slaveness or you know the coterminous with slaveness is the second one was natally disenfranchised, which is to say one's history is cut off at the knees. Mm -hmm. That is a form of damage that not only continues to happen, but when you talk about all of the things that happened after slavery that merely shifted from overt to covert, and we still live in a phase of covert, perpetual, institutionalized anti-Blackness. And the only rectification for that is reparations, because, again, another great quote from Afro-pessimism is, is the fantasies of white people become legislation. Mm -hmm. So even newer generations with these, frankly, deeply ingrained anti-Black paradigms injected in their brain created legislation based not off the legitimate needs of Black people, of African people in America, but of their fantasies. Mm -hmm. of what black people needed. No one has ever said to black people, what do you want? There's never been, and, and so you get a lot of shit like a federal holiday called Juneteenth instead of reparations. You get black, you get all this stuff and it's the liberal fantasies of what they imagine black people need rather than actually hearing what black people need. And, and so we, we have this conversation about reparations. It's like the one thing people are unwilling to do, which is my understanding too, is that America has not even formally apologized for slavery. They have no, not even have acknowledged, not. we have not even reached step one, acknowledgement. Not, not on a federal level. There are some, there's a handful of states in 2007 and eight mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. issued apologies for the atrocities on the, on the level of, on the state level. Um, and that was it. It was just the what apology. states? Were they actual Florida, slaver states? Um, for, New Jersey was one of them in 2008, which is weird because it's like, what? I don't know. Maybe that was about Asada. I'm not sure. But um, mm -hmm. the I can't remember all of them. I know Virginia was one of them. But another thing that came up when I was listening to From Here to Equality was that Florida was the only state that ever paid reparations to anybody for massacres. Um, for race massacres against Black people. For race for race massacres against black people. See, and that's interesting reparations for, history. I didn't for know. One, for one particular family 
um, who could prove their, I think it was the, the descendants of Rosewood, um, based off people who could prove that their lineages were, Do you know that how they much had an ancestor who died. I don't, it wasn't mentioned in the text. And there's Bruce's um, Beach too, you know, in, in LA and California, that was kind of a form of reparation. Do you remember that? You Like, you know, they used to just take mm-hmm. people's land. What was it called? Eminent domain in California. Oh, yeah. There's a, there a beach, Bruce's Beach, um, mm-hmm. which was a, like, you know, in the segregated Jim Crow days, black people had their own beaches. And mm-hmm. Bruce's Beach was a very popular beach amongst black people. And it was some of the best. It was gorgeous. So oh, yeah. through eminent domain, the state of California just took it. And recently, like maybe a couple of years ago, they gave it back to the family. But here's an interesting thing here. Because of what we talked about with Darity, with the wealth gap, the wealth, the wealth gulf created by centuries of institutionalized anti-blackness, they did not have the funds to maintain the beach. They immediately yeah. sold it because yeah. being bequeathed this fight. And that's one of the things about reparations is like when you start to talk about anything but immediate cash payments to me, and maybe I'm going to, it's like you're, you're starting to bog this whole thing down with bureaucracy. But Well, so here's the thing that I want to add to that. Another mm-hmm. um, documentary that I recently watched, um, Silver Dollar Road which is based off a black family in Virginia who had had um, one generation removed from enslavement. They were landowners of this coastal property in Virginia. I want to say North Carolina, but I think it's Virginia. Um, this That they held this property, held this, this beautiful land parcel right on the coastline, like, mm-hmm. you know, shrimpers, boating, the whole nine. And as the land started to get... Um, uh, brought up, there was a conflict in the family lineage where someone created a false deed and sold the property to an erroneous um, land holding company. And basically they tried to steal the land out from underneath the family. So this individual family, this 95 year old elder um, black woman, like had to go in and do battle. So they got caught up and held up in the bureaucratic struggle of court cases, which ultimately led to two brothers um, being evicted, refusing to leave the land they were incarcerated for eight years. How many stories are there like that? There's probably stories like that all over this nation. All over this nation. So like the- the, Post-Emancipation Proclamation. Post-Emancipation Proclamation. So when we have this conversation, here's what I want to say about the importance of having this conversation about reparations. It's like, and you know, I know you you love Diallo Kenyatta and I'm (laughs) listening. I'm listening. It's a lot of man- (laughs) talk it's a lot of like men on mics yeah (laughs) (laughs) men on mics give me ptsd i start scratching this shit no i get it i'm not i don't be trying to force i'm just trying to say it ain't that it ain't like that we got zero manosphere vibes but no i get it still men on mics i I have to enter into the room cautiously (laughs) i feel it i feel it you've heard too many times i've heard too many times I go in there with my hackles up, just waiting for some bullshit to yeah, fly into the yeah. microphone. And I have not heard what that. What do you so... bring to the table? <laughs> it's like, oh, no. Oh, no. It's what it is. <laughs> Why can't you Yo. cook clean and have a full-time job? Like, oh, no. <laughs> nah, it ain't like that. that is, my man ain't like that. But no, I feel it. I feel it. You know what I but mean? But he... Did talk about right. So he one of the things that I really love that he mentioned that feeds me, I think gives me more excitement about continuing this conversation is like legislation political the, the game of politics is a long game. Yes. It's a long game. 
when you have to shift ideology and like like you said that um, the fantasies of white people become legislation. We Wilderson need to get to a said. Pace. Wilderson well, Wilderson said, it. Wilderson said it. Frank Wilderson yes. said it. Shout out to shout out, we love shout out. Uncle Big Frank. Big F Dub. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's my man's right there. But so Blame. I think that we have to get to a place where our fantasies become legislation that that functions uh, service to us as well. Exactly. And so because our fantasies that, apply to us, they're about us. And they're not. We're not fantasies for white people. Fantasies for non-black people. Our like, fantasies should be made legislation. Why the fuck not? Why, Right. So like, as we get into this process of dreaming and understanding that we're playing a long game, if we look at, you know, like, um, the suffragist movement took a hundred years, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, like these, these concepts take the arc of history is one that is long. (laughs) And that's what I'm saying about Coach's essays. It's a big step. It's like, it's momentous. I think we'll look back in history at this essay as being a momentous step forward in the fight for reparations by making this conversation. Yeah, um, and it was a I think because it was something you know? that he was saying. I think he told it's kind of like, you know, the family secrets make you sick. He told mm-hmm. a family secret out loud. It's like a, an example of, you know, not to be reductive but speaking truth to power in a way to be like, no. Um the assumption that Black people don't understand the reality of our condition in this country is absurd. The assumption by, I think, some of our youth in Gen Z who have like rapid transmission of of information coming to them, not really having a lot of contextual founding in how we got here, like Mm -hmm. how you got here has Mm -hmm. to do with the hundreds of years of your predecessors doing lifetime work and labor of having these conversations being rejected, sent back, studying more, drafting, accumulating, surviving, not having their house burned down. Maybe you get arrested for eight years and got to get out and still struggle to maintain your property and continue this fight for the injustice that you've, that you've experienced. So like, I think we get to do our part in the conversation by lifting up the necessity for a conversation about reparations to say that also it is not our fault (laughs) or Mm -hmm. due to any defect of blackness or individuality that justifies our condition in the realm of like socioeconomic ranking and accessibility. Yeah. Get that shit out of here, bro. Get that shit out of here. That argument is crazy. Yeah. So when Coates lays this out, he's like, Mm -hmm. nah, the fix been in and let me give you a timeline. Mm-hmm. of how how we got here so i think it's just it's really important and it's like 45 pages long please read it there's also a cliff notes version of it um you can google it it's online it's a free pdf to, that you can download i think if you haven't engaged with Coates's um case for reparations it's a really in it's a really necessary starting point and also has relevance if you are currently being activated around um involvement in the 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 occupation of Palestine by Israel, um, because it talks about the reparations and the experience of German reparations to Holocaust survivors, as well as the United States in the founding of Israel, and gives it a context that isn't so um, riddled with contemporary propaganda that I think what you see right now. So if you go back and look at conversations that people have been having about Zionism and the Israeli state, and its occupation of Palestine and how that is also tethered to um, and aligned with the struggle for liberation for black people. Yes, it is. 
it, it will, I think it will also do something to maybe soothe some of the frayed nerves that get shot out when, you know, Zionists attack your mentions and internet trolls go to work. <laughs> One of the things I want to talk about with the, the Coates essay in particular is first off, what are the loan? Okay, so you know me, I'll be out there searching for detractors, for refuters, and yes. for people who challenge the gospel <laughs> for the blasphemers. No, I'm playing. But um, so there was this one video I watched where these two guys, older gentlemen, one black with uh, gray and one white, and this guy, he's clearly a conservative shitbag. The black guy, he's a conservative shitbag with a conservative shitbag page. He'd be platforming conservative shitbags around the fucking clock. But he brings on this guy to refute Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay. And I just want to really point out what the <laughs> entirety of his qualm with Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay is, just to show the needling and the, the futile efforts to dismantle the totality of this argument, which is frankly irrefutable. This guy needles in on the fact that with the GI Bill and the Homestead Act, that it didn't actually overtly target black people. It didn't overtly disenfranchise black people. You know, the thing about the GI Bill was that if you would get all of these benefits, which still exist, and part of the reason that we don't have free education is because they need to incentivize it so that you'll go fight their wars and colonize dark people all over the country. So, but the GI Bill is the incentive. If you go be our stormtroopers of the evil empire, we will give you said amenities, <laughs> mortgages, home loans, whatever. You still got to pay us. We ain't giving shit for free. Even if you lose a fucking arm, you still got to pay <laughs> the APR on your Corvette. But nonetheless, yeah. we got, we'll hook you up a little bit. Black people did not receive that. The GI yeah. Bill from World War One, from World War Two, and then or the they couldn't Act. find they well because there were um, limitations to where. So if you even if you got a GI Bill, you couldn't find a place that would allow you to buy a home. Exactly. So you exactly you, be, because of redlining and um, and covenant laws and things like that, where you know you had white flight and red. It just yeah. So it was a, it was a scam. Like you could get a GI right. Bill, sure, but you couldn't buy a house with it. Or and if so you did, they were going to come burn it the down. The Homestead Act or, is the same kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Which is like, here, the you get this land. You can have this land. We're over here taking it from natives. You can have mm -hmm. some land. Now, of course, do I mourn the fact black people did not directly benefit from the displacement of the natives? No. I mean, there's a, there's a poetic justice. Like, I'm, I'm grateful that we didn't receive the blood spoils of America's evil imperial tactics. But, imperial tactics. But nonetheless... This is something else they were disenfranchised from. These fucking conservative shitbags get on this and talk about, try to dismantle the essential entire nature of this man's argument, which first posits the literal slavery, posits Jim Crow, posits mass incarceration, posits redlining, posits gerrymandering, and they talk about, well, actually, black people were not the intentional disenfranchised members of the Homestead Act or disenfranchised members of the GI Bill. Therefore, this is what historians do to convert history to align with woke agendas. And, and then, you know, the second anybody says woke agenda, they are the bad guys. Anybody, but that's what they're saying. So one of the few refutations that you could talk about with historians is them saying, no, oh well, that one little thing, and, and it's it's this nature of like you see this massive, huge conspiracy with all these interlocking parts, and somebody would say, well, this one particular thing isn't what you say, as if that refutes the entirety 
of the massive and ongoing atrocity against black people and somehow mm -hmm. negates the necessity of reparations. But the point I'm trying to make is that when you see people trying to refute the necessity of reparations, there's literally no legitimate argument. There's not no. one singular legitimate argument for why black Americans should not. And so I like, I'm, that's one of the things we talked about before. I don't necessarily want to dwell on why they, the case for reparations exists. We'll link it in the show notes. You know what I mean? And it's tremendous. And it's like, if you want to argue, argue with your fucking mom, because those are facts, bro. You know? And, and so yeah. we get to a point now where it's like, let's talk about some of the legitimate plans, you know? And, and I think that that's where, but one more thing I want to say too, is in the history of reparations, one country that has actually paid reparations, which I found to be quite a stupid, is South fucking Africa, the apartheid state, the most quintessential, like America is the quintessential racist state. Let's keep it a beat. Mm -hmm. But America projected onto South Africa. You know, America would literally be like, that's fucked up what y'all doing to black people there. <laughs> they literally would say that. They're like, yeah, y'all gotta stop all that. But meanwhile, but nonetheless, nonetheless, <laughs> what ended up happening was that from apartheid, 21,000 or so South Africans, did, they had these hearings for like years where all these South Africans got to give testimonials about how apartheid in all its forms had irreparably damaged them. And then mm -hmm. they were all given about checks for about $4,000. Now, I'm oh, not wow. arguing about the, the amount, but one okay. interesting fact is it was when the black government, the Afri it was it was a black president, you know, post-apartheid. That was mm -hmm. the only way reparations were paid, which Absolutely. is interesting because from that Afro-pessimistic lens, it reverts to the notion that only we will get for us what is ours. So even the case and the act of getting reparations and these plans, these are not polite requests. They're not even demands. I think we really have to, as black people, organized politically around the singular ask in America and a 13% population in organization is infinitely more powerful than an 87 in disorganization. So I do yeah. believe that the way the black or black people in America receive reparations is through autonomy and through self-determination and ultimately the political act of organizing and demanding what belongs to us um and then now and so what is that and i that's why i want to get into darity because i feel like he provides what i believe to be the best plan okay well before we go to darity okay i i absolutely agree with you and i have some things to share about that but i want to touch on some of like the, the okay. brass tacks that darity offers but in between coats and darity is H.R. 40, which is legislation that is currently being championed in the House by uh, Sheila Jackson, represent House Representative Sheila Jackson. Um, mm -hmm. And then on the Senate floor, Cory Booker is holding it. So, mm, mm. Um, <coughs> yeah. So <coughs> with, with this, there's 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 there is. This is not legislation, but what it is, is a request for a commission to research the feasibility to study reparations. So it's mm -hmm. like to take the work that Coates does in a 45 page essay to 
create a commission to set aside, what is it like $500,000 or maybe it's $5 million or something like that to do a comprehensive study about um, a reparation solution for the United States. To bog it down in bureaucracy. To bog Coach's essay down in bureaucracy. Basically. So every year it gets presented. Every year, you know, I think the first year, maybe like two people signed off and now like maybe 17 people have signed in, you know, so it continues to get presented every single round of Congress. um, HR 40 comes comes back up for consideration, but it's not actual legislation. It doesn't offer a solution. It is heavily influenced by um, and presented by um, in COBRA which Conrad Worrell, um, who's the Economic Development Commissioner of this organization, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, which was established in 1988. This mm-hmm. particular group has been a champion of this legislative endeavor to just talk get about it. To acknowledge. Step that one, acknowledgement. Just, you know, like we'll put together a nonpartisan committee of five individuals who will do research and, you know, launch it. And this is federal, right? HR 40 is federal. Federal. Yes. Mm. There in 2019, there was the commission where Danny Glover, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, you know, uh, Sandy Darity, they all went and spoke to the, you know, (laughs) flat-faced congressmen to, you know, appeal to them about the necessity to um to to pass legislation or to allow for this commission to exist and start this research or to also declare the importance of um of reparations for black folks and it, it i feel like i get bored just talking about it yeah because what <laughs> yeah you know what i mean like Damn. what are what are we there that doesn't mean anything because it just presents and, and maybe I'm wrong for saying that because short sure, every year do more people sign it's significant on it. for that reason sure. alone. It is significant for that reason alone. So I don't want to poo poo anything that has been being worked on to get to this point. A win is a win. Sure. And it doesn't really offer any kind of viable solution or policy statement or even demand that we can make to say, this is what it looks like. And this yeah. is how we get it done. So, yeah. Um, Sandy Darity's concept of it from an, an economic standpoint and a sociological standpoint, and also which I think allies, aligns with um, Diallo's position, is that you know you have to stop trying to appeal to the moral, the morality of reparations when you're dealing with an immoral institution or entity such mm-hmm. as the empire, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. morality is off the table because here's the thing, the unconscious reality of anti-blackness is such that they don't care. As a matter of fact, no, they've actually designed it to be this way. And for the benefit of the, the top 3% um, wealthiest people on the planet, they want it this way. They need to continue to extract free labor or, or reduce labor from the, the lower, lowest caste folks in society. That is how this country was built. Mm-hmm. If you amassed wealth by having unpaid, incessant labor for 342 years, yeah. why would you want to start paying a fair market rate for wages now? Or for resources, 
or for anything. Ever. Fair market rate just for anything, ever. For and anything. that's that's the thing about it. It's like past for slavery. Taxes, like not. nothing. So like ideologically, it doesn't, it's you really have to deal with like the insanity um and the mental illness of anti-blackness in order to understand why we keep having to figure out how to strategize um, around having these arguments. And Diallo says that when you're considering it from a political perspective, you have to be cold, distant, and calculated right. in order for it to take effect. So how do we turn the, the, the fight for reparations and the justification for reparations into a viable political stance? Because currently, if any politician or elected official they mentions reparations, that kills their, op- their opportunity. You're done. So, interdarity with the solution, yeah, and an actual political stance as it relates to the benefits of reparations. I think, well, one of the things that he also talks about, you know, you sent me an essay that Darity writes about H.R. 40 and what it gets wrong. And fundamentally what it gets wrong is who's on this commission? Who's on this commission? When we find, if H.R. 40 passes, who's on this commission? Is it black people? No, that ain't gonna work. And so when we talk about a viable political agenda, I hate to make this comparison because they are the literal definition of evil. But if you, again, when you read that book, Against Our Better Judgment, Israel coalesced the support for Israel from the same position. Nobody, it was unviable until it was viable. And fundamentally, it was their locked organization like they were in lockstep they were organized as as a group of people their requests their demands and it started from theodore herschel and a small group of people in a harvard thing so like again i really do believe the fundamental is black people organized first in cohorts not unlike me and you sitting around talking and then expand expanding outright but like when we talk about for instance we mentioned them yesterday like fba or ados Fundamentally, I disagree with a lot of things that are said about anything that addresses blackness from a conservative perspective. They are frankly conservatives. It's a reactionary movement. They're Republicans across the board, ADOS and FBA. But even the black Republicans want reparations. So that's the indication to me that it's like, okay, this we can agree on. And when you have the black left and the black right in lockstep, the world changes. That's how you saw these tremendous, like one of the things that people talk about a lot is like, not people, some people deny the progress we at black, at black people have made in this nation. And all of the progress that black people have made in this nation is from black organization, not from non-black largesse, not from better. So again, Every single time that we talk about how do black people achieve something, it's first coming in accord and then defining it. So I really do believe that the way that this becomes a legitimate political stance is black people are a legitimate political force and organization as a lobby. Like one of the things Darity says is we need money to be lobbyists. You need lobbyists. You need people there. You need, you need like there are no reparations lobbyists. 
You know what I mean? So you really do need black organization and black autonomy and black self-sufficiency in terms of this is not, nobody else is going to fight for this. Like we're going to fight for this. And, and black, and one of the things, the only other people that I can imagine outside of the actual beneficiaries, which is to say black Americans, descendants of enslaved people is African immigrants and black and African people throughout the world must be in support of reparations for black Americans. If African immigrants pose themselves either as trying to hop on top of and receive, they must realize this is for the black Americans and this will reverberate outwards. It's super duper important for black people in this country, whether you be of this generational origin or you be an immigrant, that you agree that black Americans and the descendants of enslaved people deserve reparations or you are not pan-Africanist. You are not. I, I agree with you. And I would go so far as to say, again, you know, um, none of us gets free until the most marginalized among us are free. Right. Um, reparations is good for everybody. Last week's episode, I said that I believe that the solution to all of America's problems is reparations for black people. I, 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 Cause whatever, whatever is in the way is the way. I believe that that's true on an individual level for on a communal level, on a global level, like that's the thing. This idea of acknowledgement, atonement, and you know, healing, recompense, closure, you know what I mean? Clo comes along with that accountability to have the closure to say that now that I have made this contribution, I also assure you that no further harm would come, right? Like it's like this accountability um, feedback loop of saying like, oh, so now we're in this together. I really do believe that. The issue, so Darity gives a number, has a set number, which is another thing that is, I think he uses to problematize um, HR 40 and some of the other, and ADOS and some of these other organizations, NARC, who has, um, who have put forth conversations about reparations. Like I hear a lot of people who are like, we have to do something. We can't trust the government. We have to do something, but there's never like a synthesized solution or answer. And so that's why I'm kind of really honing in on what Darity's saying, because he gives you like brass tacks, num numer numerical breakdowns. And the number is the tune of 250 to $300,000 per person who has a specific, a uh, precise um, eligibility established for their receipt of reparations. Which is good eligibility. I like his eligibility standards, which is, right. I understand it's first is you got to prove you are the descendant of, an of enslaved Africans and mm -hmm. B, you have to have self-identified as black for 12 yes. years. Yes. That's great. I fuck with so, um, secondly, the amount of the reparation must be adequate to eliminate the wealth gap. So a $4,000 check in the United States in this economy ain't going to cut it. Right. Your $1,400 quote unquote Trump check that you got during COVID is not it, boo. Your your um, child tax credit is not it. These are, these are not the things, right? Life-changing so, money. It must be life-changing money. And so that amount of life-changing money is $250,000 to $300,000 per person, which inside a household looks like $850,000 of, of wealth or worth established inside a household um, income, right? 
that would be enough to sufficiently eliminate the gap. The third piece is direct payment and endowment with discretion of use being solely in the hands of the recipient. So you don't also get to agree. hard agree. You don't get to police what black folks do with their money. I.e., mm -hmm. how many times have we seen, you know, you can't buy crab legs on EBT or, you know, all of the ways that we are surveilled and policed with how we do spend our money, whether mm -hmm. or not it's the fact that we're also boosting this bitch ass economy with how we do that. But mm -hmm. I digress. So mm -hmm. these three things must be established. The total number that Darity provides is saying that it would be upwards of at least 10 to $12 trillion. Mm -hmm. is an entire reparations package that the United States would have to invest on a federal label, level to resolve this issue, right? Which kind of aligns with the Bob Johnson plan. It was similar numbers. Bob Johnson, remember the, the mm -hmm. BET guy? Very similar numbers. So to me, that consensus indicates that that's an accurate range. Absolutely. I mean, even mm -hmm. the um, the ADOS people, well, the ADOS people say they want $20 trillion, um, but they also don't have a plan for distribution that was that was anything that I know. They're somewhat unserious. They're, they're somewhat, somewhat they're somewhat unserious. unserious. I watched yeah. their commercial on their website and I'm like, first of all, why is everything red, white, and blue? Second of all Because they're conservative shitbags. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> That's why they are. They're gonna go vote for Trump. They're Republicans, bro. They're yeah. anti-immigration. They're reactionary. It's a lot of it's not it's the opposite of Pan Africa's black liberation. It's it's localized black liberation. Ugh. Which is Ooh. inherently faulty, yeah, because they're makes, conservative shitbags. It makes. I remember no reading okay. in the trailer that that or in their their treatise that Yvette Carnell, who is the main the leader, says we want to be made white. I believe that's in their actual document of we want to be made white. Isn't she really really light skinned? <laughs> yeah, like it ain't gonna be much work for you, boo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Just stay out the sun a couple weeks. You'll be straight. This is just an objective observation. No. I noticed that. You know how I feel. Yesterday. I, I okay. So. Yeah, no, I was like, whoo. She Drake skin, bro. She damn near Drake skin, bro. She real, real light skin. Um, <laughs> okay, no shots, but you know, we noticed. We noticed. Anyway, I'm just saying. Anyway. So, all right. So if the current national debt is $22 trillion, give or take, right? I'm I'm offering with this new data, with these numbers, that by doubling down and investing to buy out yourself from your own debt, you inoculate the black community, this 13%, with $12 trillion in a reparations package and watch everything get better. If you if you invest $12 trillion into the black community, acknowledge the harm of slavery. You uh, you compensate for the harm, for the egregious harm, and you provide closure to this community. If you pay this bill that has been overdue, just sitting in your inbox for 155 years, you fix all of the problems that you have and you resolve your national debt index. I believe that is the case. Now, why won't they do it? Because the unconscious reality mm. of anti-Blackness mm. as it functions... Mm is so egregious and embedded into the ego of heteropatriarchal white male ideology. They mm. hate us so much that they would rather cut off their noses to spite their face because they are pissed off that they can no longer extract from our bodies for sport. 
because you no longer, you would have to let go of your obsession, this distorted obsession that you have with the extraction and manipulation of the black body and black identity for sport and fun and shits and giggles. And that would be the only reason why. That would, that's the only reason why you would have to, Mm -hmm. it would require you to see black folks as human and therefore deserving of being made whole. And that is where the United States will continue forever to falter. That is how we got here in the first place. I, and I think that that's, and, yeah, and that's it. I agree. I agree. And that's so it. I think the response to that in a lot of ways is like I said, they haven't wanted to give us anything ever. Everything no. that we've gotten, we fought for tooth it's and nail. We just, we just got to fight refused. the way we fought, the way we continue so to for, fight. So for, for white folks, for white folks who are listening and identify as allies, I, first, a lot of times I have to check myself and be like, I have to make sure that I'm functioning in my assessment of what my politics are and how I'm aligning myself in such a way that I'm not functioning inside the white gaze. But I also want to say that reparations are good for everybody because white people can, if they are able to on an individual or communal level, break their egoic identity around this unconscious anti-blackness, then they would also realize that they too are being impacted by the empire in negative ways. It, the only, it's what did Chris Rock say? Nothing a po, po white trash with a penny hates more than a nigger with a nickel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That ideology in and of itself is what is preventing you from your own liberation. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 So that is why it caused you to say things like, well, my family worked really hard. My grandparents didn't have anything. We worked really hard for everything that we have. And it's like, but y'all got paid for that hard work. <clears throat> Again, nobody came and burned down your grandma's house, though. Nobody for came and did that. For literally 250 years, we didn't get paid. So I hear you, boo. That and ain't that's relevant. great. But that's not real. And I also want to say something about that number. My understanding is, and I can only refer to my understanding, I'm always open to refutation. That amount of money, 10 to $12 trillion, has been, quote unquote, unaccounted for by the United States military virtually every fucking year. 2020, 2021, (laughs) 2022. I'm serious. I mean, like literally, 10 to $12 every fucking year. We don't know where it went. Yeah. You know where it's in a weapons... uh... Uh, convo- envoy, or it's in it's buried in Halliburton, or it's, it's in Dick Cheney's under, belly. I mean, like we're talking about puppeteers. We're puppeteers. Sandia Labs. It's in White Sands, New Mexico. It's right. being used to um to send Elon Musk to the moon, or whatever the fuck. Like it's colonizing galaxies. It's you know, it's it's searching for millionaires in the bottom of the ocean who are down there with PlayStation controllers trying to find the Titanic. Like it is in all of those no, places. I mean, and, and you know, what's funny is literally I would guarantee every single one of those exp- adventures has United States military subsidies at, at, yeah. at minimum the, from the crazy, the Pepsi can in the sea to, to, you know what I mean? Elon Musk want to colonize Mars and, and, and mine it for di- every fucking thing. United, and that's the thing about it is like, and I hate to say this, bro. Debt is fake. The yeah, national debt yeah. is fake. It's so made is, up. So but is money. Here's, so is, so is money. The entirety, the, the entirety, we're talking about resources. But this is one of the, the legitimate 
concerns about cash payments that a guy like Diallo has brought up is it's fiat currency, which is to say, you know, it's just money. It has no attributed to wealth, actual. They might just lower the value. If black people get money, would they not just lower the value of money? I mean, it's a so, legitimate concern. It's a legitimate concern. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's the It's not um, enough to prevent the continuing seeking of, but it's it's something that must be factored in. You know, Darity talks about it about the devaluation of black life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, during chattel slavery, upon which everything that we realize in the United States as our Americanness was founded. Like, I just, that's an inarguable, irrefutable fact. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, if we don't agree on that, you should probably turn off the podcast now and stop listening. Mm-hmm. But we used to be insurable assets when we were owned as property as slaves. Right. Most insurance companies were built. On that premise, yep. On the premise. Existing ones, big a, ones. Yeah. New York Life, MetLife. Life. Mm-hmm. Um, the, these insurance companies were, and when the institutions themselves, which is another reason why institutions, families, um, and the and the government are included in the definition of, re- of reparations, when they, in, when they were, because some of them have been sued individually for their role in slavery, and they didn't, while they didn't necessarily pay the reparations, they did the thing where they're like, oh, we're going to engage in self-study. So they did. They started to engage in self-study. And guess what they found? Some racist bullshit, such as people would take out life insurance policies for their for their slaves and then use them as investments, impending their death so that they could pass on wealth to accrue wealth. So accrue accrue wealth and, and pass it down generationally. The whole reason, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times a financial accountant or a financial advisor has told me, oh, you just need to take out insurance policies on your parents and like pay into it. And, you know, if you pay into it monthly, then when they die, you get whatever. And I'm like, certain that's wild. Certain things don't compute in my brain the same way because of my relationship as being like dehumanized and, and traded on the stock market as a commodity. To do you know that to I your mean? parents. That's why. Like it's, it's, but it's, it makes total sense to in the capitalist mindset. So all of these systems about money, credit scores, interest rates, all of that are systems that were invented to justify the dehumanization of Black bodies and to f- create systems to move around the inordinate amount of wealth that was being generated. There was literally so much money they did not know what to do with it so they created systems and gave jobs to white men to move the money around in invisible graphs and grids i.e the stock market to set rates of inflation so that they could keep a control on just how big it got so all of this is like a way to surveil the fruits of the the theft right or the the booty if you will it's like the people who are counting the numbers in the cave being like, uh, buy, sell, trade. It's too big. It's too much. Shut it down. Don't tell, you know what I mean? And then they create their own code of conduct and as if the whole thing wasn't already a scam in the first place. It's absurd. But either way, the devaluation of Black life in and of itself is made evident by... So it so from, from Black life used to be something that was an insurable asset, Right. Right. Now that we've seen this devaluation over time through the civil rights era, movement for black lives, all these things where we're like, hey, no, we're humans, we're sentient, we're educated, we're out here, we're contributing to society. 
the response from whiteness and on the federal and state level is to say, your life is not important. So now police can murder black people at three times the rate of our white citizen, our white counterparts because our lives do not matter. So the argument black lives matter also being erased by saying, so what are you saying that Asian lives don't matter, that white lives don't matter? No, we're reminding you that when we're not being used as sites of extraction and labor for the machine, we are human beings. But anti-blackness in this innocuous, unconscious sense continues to interrupt that in the white ideology. So are we up against it? Absolutely. But I just need us to know the importance of being able to like contextualize, decontextualize, understand, and then choose a way forward that really makes sense so that when we're making arguments, we're not distracted by these negative, limiting, reductive narratives that are really rooted in hateful... Um, Indoctrinated you know. anti-Blackness. Like Absolutely. truthfully, like re really rooted in the idea. Because this is what I think when we talk about the singular question of reparations is do you hate black people <laughs> no i don't well then you agree with reparations mm -hmm. no I, it's, it's really that simple you either hate black people and and here's the thing about hating black people is it's wrong it's so wrong that only people who are willing to admit it are completely disenfranchised from regular society you can only be covertly anti-black but even that question can be excavated with the simple question of do you support reparations? If not, let me assure you, you're fucking David Duke. It's no different. It really is that simple. And this is the way yeah. it's got to be posed because it's like the only refutation of Afro-pessimism is if the state says, yes, repairing black damage is a necessity. The reason that literally every other aggrieved party in American history has been able to receive some form of reparations, whether that be the Japanese internment camps, whether that be Native Americans, whether that be the actual fucking slave owners, you name aggrieved party, they've all received, is because of Afro-pessimism. The notion that black people and their experience as a subjugated class is right as rain. Mm -hmm. It's the way it's supposed to be. Now, on a, on a pre, on a, like the actual foreconscious mind, Clearly not, but subconsciously, clearly so. And so there's this dichotomy to where people can say to your face, no, I don't hate black people, and also I don't support reparations. When that dichotomy can no longer exist, we yeah. as black people organizing and coalescing as a, as a political movement to make reparations forefront, on the table for everybody, a singular question, it's not, it's damn near rhetorical. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter whether you do or we don't. Black people coalescing power changes the world, moves the world. If we, responsible for the cultural output we have, responsible for the, for the intellectual output, responsible for the sociolog sociological output, merely maintained ownership, like, I, like in the socialist phrase, seize the means of production, the world would starve. The other premise behind Afro-pessimism is the world needs us. Yeah. And so the reality is if they want to maintain a semblance of a relationship with blackness that is not coterminous with slaveness, reparations must be paid. Mm -hmm. As long as reparations are not paid, Frank Wilderson is provably right. Absolutely. It's the actual verification of Frank Wilderson's entire thesis. Well, and I mean, here's the thing. Do I think that there is a, um, I think that the whole thing falls apart 
<laughs> when the whole system falls apart, this is how the empire crumbles. When mm-hmm. black people are compensated, when when black people are repaired, right. the system does crumble. And but and I think that that's the thing that you know the individual um, white person who has been lulled into some false sense of safety and security inside their supremacist ideology is that this is why Sonia Renee Taylor calls it the delusion of white supremacy, right? Um, when they right. are under that right. delusion of delusion. white supremacy, they say things like, oh, so you can get reparations. So what I, now I have to sign my house over to you or I have to out of my tax dollars. It's like this um, elitist concept where it's kind of like, you don't have no money either. Anyway, like, like, don't you get it, bro? It's not real. None of this is real. It's not real. They need you to believe that it is real. They need you to believe that you are self-important. So the 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 MAGA <clears throat> dudes who you know the, the Trumpers, whatever, they need you to believe that this wealthy, mediocre, uneducated white man elder is re- represents you that he cares about you what it's god yeah, he that's what god money. looks like right and that's literally what god yeah, looks like and to that that degree, they, they, they get institutionalized or maybe operationalized as these like toy soldiers whether or not they're marching in the army of the lord for the actual u.s military or for for maga like mm-hmm. capitalism, capitalism right they become right. these toy soldiers who feel like they're mm-hmm. actually doing some kind of just work by perpetuating the violence and being the on the, the boots on the ground of the ones who are the real terrorists um who you know right. the i mean it's like it's it's like nazi it's like it's very giving nazi vibes you know what i mean it's like yeah. oh yeah, like who suffered under Nazi Germany? The rank and file Nazis. Hitler went into a bunk and killed himself. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, like, like again, like, and so one of the things that these people bear the delusion of is somehow they are benefiting from the maintenance of anti-blackness when it's being very clear that they're actually being penalized and suffering thereof because it's that anti-blackness they are forced to maintain that distracts them from their wealth being extracted by this 3%. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the end of the world, they too should champion the end of the world as we know it because this world is only working for 3% of the population. Absolutely. The end of this world as we know it is, in fact, beyond black liberation, global liberation from capitalist hegemons who have extracted and are, are really headlong entering into environmental destruction, full stop. Like these same group of people that you're vociferously defending, like you said, you're the fucking boots on the ground for billionaires who got put the battery in your back but don't actually give you no energy in that battery. Mm-hmm are going to destroy the entire world. Because when we start to talk about the environmental damage that occurs along the world in places like Africa, in places like Flint, Michigan, in places like Alabama, in places in these black concentrated things, that's your water, mm-hmm. that's your air, that's your food. You know, the cobalt in your phones, all this stuff. So we live in a fishbowl. So this notion somehow that a handful of profiteers can destroy the world in maintenance of the delusion of white supremacy, you aren't being harmed as well? That is the incentive for white people to be like, yes, I support not only reparations, but literally black liberation. Because the maintenance of black subjugation is really, it's, it's, the damage upon the white psyche, when you talk about the notion of the white American who lives today, 
they are in an existential crisis about the fact that they have tacitly been, and, and that's the thing about critical race theory, to acknowledge that you yourself are not just a beneficiary of the evil empire, but its stormtrooper is too much for the mind to bear. Mm -hmm. But there is a solution, and the solution is reparations. Mm -hmm. And a guy like Darity, a guy you know who lays out, this is a great plan, this could be solved in a fucking year. They cut these kind of checks for nothing, bro. Like one of the things I always think about is the Ukraine war. And it's just like, people don't realize, bro. Like when they talk about, oh, that's gonna make our taxes go up. Your taxes go up arbitrarily for whatever war the United States is in that they wanna finance for whatever. Your taxes go up arbitrarily every year. You would not notice the difference. That's the one of the most baffling things about the resistance is the notion that you would notice the difference in the reparations paid out and your tax check. And it's like you said, then there's other thing. I don't wanna see black people raise up in the hierarchy because the one thing that keeps my white mind stitched together is the notion that I am many things, but at least I'm not a nigga. Mm -hmm. That part. And if you take that away from me, it's deeper than money. It's deep. It's literally my psyche, but it's like, that's harming you too. This is again, I, I, Toni Morrison, she said, who are you without racism? Yeah. You're what? Are, yeah. you, who are, are you, you without are racism? you still any good? Are you like, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. just, there you are with your little self all strung out. Just, just uh, because then, then nothing else makes sense. You know what I mean? No, nothing else matters at that point. Because racism takes everything that's good in the world mm -hmm. and puts it through a, a lens of, oh, well, they made it, but we own it. Yeah. And you don't own it. A handful. Three per so like when you talk about I always think about rap music as this colonized art form, hip hop as this colonized art form, and how the the it's this tool simultaneously to maintain black subjugation, but also to maintain sense of white superiority because they consume our degradation, hmm. and they do it in this very fetishistic fashion. Yeah. You will see people extremely removed from the condition of black life. Like the greatest example I can give is the way that a lot of white kids would talk about when's dirt going to slide on, on, on such and such for what happened to Vaughn. When, you know, when, when like white kids in the suburbs are talking about when is this rapper going to avenge the death of his other rapper friend, mm -hmm. because you're watching DJ academics who the negotiator mm. talk about these real black lives like they're fictional for the consumption of white people. This also involves the white psyche, the maintenance of white supremacy that you can literally consume the cultural aspects of black degradation, the music, the clothes, the style, the food, and not actually be concerned about the well-being and the lives thereof. Yeah. That always baffles me when white people are like, they see hip hop and they see the street element and they don't think to themselves, this shit is fucked up. They go, I wanna do that. It's that's why I hate white rappers. That shit's ridiculous the, to me. It's the sublimation of yes. the sublimation of black suffering. 
You know what I mean? It's mm. kind of like, okay, you know, that this is, it's the same, What what's happening with the, when is so-and-so going to, you know, avenge the death of the other? Slide on. I don't know. Yeah, Vaughn, slide for Vaughn. And like, what? I'm, auntie don't know. You're in Wichita. Shut the fuck auntie up. Auntie don't know none of them babies, but I, you know, pray for their their safety. Um, that was mad years yeah, ago, but, but they do this all they the time. This all you time. know what I mean? And like, New York drill music is literally like, gun, it, you know, Chicago drill it's music. Gun, yeah, it's gun it's fair. Like, it's, it's gun, yeah. yeah, I do know that. Um, and I, yeah. and also fuck academics, but, um, yeah. Oh but God. He's this is, this is a modernized variation of like lynching parties. You know what I and mean? And Mandingo fights and, and that whole shit. And bucking farms and you know what and I mean? Like, farms. and, and rape and gator bait and all of the, th- and like mm. how, like what? Like it is. And like Diallo even said, gender wars are a byproduct of breeding farm affections. Yeah. That you see the gender wars in, but it's, it's, so we live with this shit. And it's, it, and one of the things that we, we can't extricate is the fact that that act predicates our present. So when they talk about this notion of it was a long time ago, no, it's, it right really now. wasn't a long time ago. It's not a long Malcolm time ago. Malcolm X was but it's right assassinated now. 60 years ago. It's not a long time ago. Like, no, <laughs> no, it's been less time. Um, quote unquote emancipated than in bondage. We've only been able to vote for fifty five years, and these fifty five years—that's literally fifteen years older than me. I. So listen, these dipshits, the 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 TikTok babies. I just need y'all to focus. I came across a video of a young woman who was adamantly talking about how there's been no legislation that's been passed in the fifty five years that's done anything to advance the condition of Black folks, and therefore we should not vote at all. Mm-hmm. I know that this is a popular opinion among black folks. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. It's a form of bypass. A, it really I is. I do, but yes, that's exactly what it is because it allows you to disengage from a system that the only recourse that we have, the, you're, let me tell you something, black people, if your vote did not matter, they would not work so hard to suppress it. To take it away. Period. That's it. So just imagine what would it look like if every eligible black person were to vote and were to and, and in favor of one thing though. Fa- That's what I'm yeah, saying. It's like black organization. Thing. Yeah, in favor of one yeah. thing because they're still out here dividing the base, right? That's the strategy. Like Reagan did it. Trump did it. There's all different types of commissions and organizers and politicians and lobbyists who function for the very point part of like creating chaos among the um, among the base that's how that video even made it to my fucking timeline today was because Mm -hmm. it's intended to create this kind of like um uh dissonance in the conversation to be divisive among black folks and it's like i need you to think that somebody somebody already died for this somebody got Mm. Some some hundreds and thousands have gotten PhDs and dedicated their whole lives to this. There's things that were there are blueprints that have already been made that might need to be modified in accordance with the contemporary knowledge and wisdom and technology that but you have now. Provenly effective, but they were provenly absolutely effective. effective. So I just want to I want to say that we have to continue these conversations in a way that is like, um, hmm fervent, adamant, you know what I mean? Like, right. how do we have, and, and, and many of us are saying the same thing, like um, Edgar Villanueva's Decolonizing Wealth um, is Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. It's a book that he's written about, like, how to decolonize wealth 
from an indigenous lens. And in this, it talks about healing by grieving, apologizing, listening, relating, representing, investing, repairing, and then bringing an issue full circle. Similar to the steps that um, Darity is talking about. There's It's more broken out. Some folks have it cons- consolidated down to five steps. There is the narrative lab that is giving you um, a full report that breaks down how to what are the guideposts by which to change the narrative about reparations in a way that's suitable um, for your average thinking person, right? We'll link that in the in the chat. We'll link that in the the show notes. The Narrative Lab has done beautiful work and and research around how we actually have conversations about reparations that might not be as incendiary as what Jonas and I are talking about today, but are still necessary conversations for you to be having. So again, do you love black people? Do you support reparations? Right. Like, right. Are, if right. you, I, right. I don't, if you are out because here, I, well, if you're out here I'm talking about it, that question, do you love black people? This means not personally, structurally. So it's like, oh, black, but any, do you love black people structurally? Because we're talking about structural. I think that sentiment, do you love black people? One of the things I really think about that is that people will personally love black people but not be interested in rectifying their structural that's not love place. that's not love that's not love that's not love you don't love you, that's, that's not, not love. love you don't love me you you fantasize the ideal of me you might have um you might admire me but eventually that turns into resentment and i can tell you that from being a black girl from being a black woman um who has been in white spaces that that fake love for black people without the structural support of a black politic is very fleeting. It, it's not sustainable. And, and that's what we're talking about, a black politic. Yeah. Right there. This is a black politic, yeah. reparations. Because I think one of the things about this notion of let's extricate ourselves from political discourse. Let's extricate ourselves from politics. The, in fact, the opposite needs to take place. No. All 13% of black people need to be hyper-politically this conscious. Is, I'm hella if political. there's any one yeah. thing that could rapidly involve, you know what I'm saying, is like literally instead of the, uh, instead of bypassing, Invest, become the most politically savvy of you. Because one thing that we can assure is that if you look in your peer group, if you're not having to be concerned with politics, that's a deficiency. So it's like when you see the quote unquote enfranchised populations treating popula- or treating politics and treating voting like it's just, oh, laissez-faire, it doesn't really matter. That's a vulnerability we can expose by being a black population that's hyper-politically conscious, that's hyper-aware. And it's like something we mandate in our children, in our youth, in our conversations all the time. We just have this. And here's the thing about it. It's like, are, do we hope everybody's politically aligned with us? Of course, that'd be a pie in the sky, but that's not necessary. Singular issues, we must be politically aligned. All black people in America whether you be an immigrant or whether you be not, must support reparations. It is the first and most powerful act of black coalescing, of black coalition for political mandates. And if we can do this, we can do anything. We can begin to decolonize the other steps of all these other things that occur. But it's like, if there was anything to be taken away from this, it's like, take the narrative lab, take Coates' writing, take this thing and go have this conversation with people all the fucking time because there can be no quarter. Your white friends cannot sit around and enjoy your company and not support reparations. And if you're more invested in being accepted by your white friends than healing your people, then just go be your white friends. But I assure you, you will come to this conclusion when you are older, 30, 40, 50, oh my God, I cannot be made white. Mm-mm. You can only be black. So the tri- the reality of the situation is that like political consciousness is the course. 
<laughs> what? No, May the, White? the yeah, May White no. thing. But, that sent me, boy. That ADOS yeah, lady. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. What's her it, name? It's Yvette? crazy. It's this crazy. not the first wild Carnell. Yvette Carnell. Yikes. <laughs> nah, you know what I'm saying? I, I really do think that when that happens, when you have a politically disenfranchised group, not just actually disenfranchised, but politically disenfranchised, and not just politically disenfranchised in the way that we're talking about snatching voting rights, but just unawares, walking around, like you have the privilege of being politically unawares, you are being doubly and triply harmed. And that's when you have these weird amalgamations and monstrosities forming out of maladapted political consciousness by black people who have been inundated with this rhetoric from like, we were talking about this last time. The scariest thing that you could have happen is black people made white. Black people who behave with these white ideals, who can go out into the world. And so their approach right now, when you talk about FDA, FBA or ADOS or any of these other things, it's like the amalgamation of capitalistic, hegemonic, patriarch, patriarchal ideals mixed with sprinklings of what they believe to be black liberation. And the way that they do that is the exact opposite of that notion that the most marginalized need to be free. No, just them. Mm -hmm. And then somehow... It'll, everything will be fixed. And, and this leads me to believe, but this is a byproduct of a lack of general political consciousness. That's how you get a Tariq Nasheed. So you get a Yvette Carnell because you outsource politics to some fucking scumbag who's willing to do it. Yeah. And then the first thing they're going to do, just like a religious person would do, is be like, oh, you want to know God? Let me sell it to you. Oh, you want to know politics? Let me sell it to you. Mm -hmm. Let me make this. And then what you end up having is they want to keep you in this permanent condition of disenfranchisement because they are profiteers of your disenfranchisement. Mm -hmm. And that's who you have black people made white. Yeah, like Frederick Douglass. So the very, like Frederick Douglass, like you really have this thing <laughs> of like, you, wait, wait, wait. I thought he was good. What happened to Frederick Douglass? He went No, he Frederick went left. Douglass you know said, him? don't, he was like, I don't think it's a good idea. To, oh, he said something about yeah, it. Yeah, he I was like, what? <laughs> he didn't think it was a good idea. He said he was concerned that black people, black men, the black man didn't have the to or the fortitude mm -hmm. to manage life on his own at post slavery so during reconstruction he was like i don't think you should give them land and money and things like that they wouldn't know what to do with it he later rescinded it and regretted his his commentary but he he was not in support of reparations for black people yeesh yeesh mm -hmm. but again because you get you get there into, are these like these, when you talk these, about those people profiteers these profiteers, profiteers yeah and i mean frederick douglas did die married to a white woman so um Ooh, let's um, um, so <laughs> my hands are up in case you, want, you can't see my hands are up. You know what I mean? <laughs> my hands are up. Neither here nor there. I'm just mentioning cause you know, um, but as a profiteer, um, this, this idea that you can be made white is also, mm -hmm. it reminds me of the, the whitening of the immigrant of the European immigrant, mm. um, mm. that took place made in white. America to be made white. And so that was the option or the opportunity that they eventually received after being, you know, relegated to ghettos and so on and so forth. But like the offer of whiteness allowed folks to undergo their own level of, of ethnic identity cleansing or um, identity reconstruction or reconfiguring so that their practice assimilation assimilation. Um, that was, I mean, some folks might argue that it was forced for white folks, but, uh, I think it was forced for indigenous people. It was forced for native Americans for fuck sure. And I think white folks were given that as an option to separate themselves further on the spectrum of being black. 
not niggas, not niggas. So like that whole thing about when we say that the concept, the ideology of hegemonic white supremacist ideology is counterbalanced on anti-blackness. Being the darkest person in the room that you are in automatically by default puts you in um, at, at the bottom of the, the, the structural or, or ideological hierarchy of all the people in the room. That's just what it is. Yeah. So this idea that somehow you can stand on your wallet and be higher up in that category to be made white because you are now wealthy still does nothing to close the wealth gap that has been created by hundreds of years of um, maladaptive practices as it relates to the dehumanization of black people in America. Low key, that sounds like some manosphere shit to be like, me and a group of my friends, we trying to put together a collective to self actually like to take care of the wealth gap ourselves again that that flies in the face of collectivism and that flies in the face of like the ideas like again this is not going to be solved with capitalist ideals this is not going to be solved with patriarchal ideals and this is not going to be solved with with white pathology pathological ideals i mean like, I those think, all must be jettisoned i think what we need Seriously. i mean to be honest with you i think that we need um i think that we need allyship from white people um, I, I think that you do? for for reparations to take hold in the way that I feel like it should, I think white people need to vocalize their support of reparations. That's what I was going to say, too, is like, that's what I mean, though. It's, it's like, y'all got to have the conversation. Like, me, we can't have the It can't be a conversation from a black person to a bunch of white people about reparations. It's got to be a bunch of white people in a I room mean, and one white person being like, yo, we got to do this. And here's the incentive. Aren't y'all tired of this shit? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you? Y'all sit at the table, and 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 you talk to your grandpa. He's, you know what I mean. He's like, no, I love it. You're about to die, bro. Yeah. Okay, so we don't really care about you. But mom, dad, you got forty more years left. Do you want to live in the iniquity of racial injustice for the next forty years? Because here's the, here's what are they the deal. Say? It's, it's yes? why. It's why you can't for the for the Gen Z, Zoomer, Y, whatever, millennials the broke millennial generation who can't afford to buy houses, who inflation is whipping your ass, whose student loans are coming knocking on your door, whose um, uh, the, the the job market is not what they told you where you thought- Whiteness is not cool. working out Whiteness for you. Whiteness ain't doing what it used to do. It ain't hitting like it used to <laughs> It ain't doing what it, it ain't hitting like it used to hit. You know what I mean? You, know what I mean? you out here- You got TikTok, you ain't got shit else. You're like, you wait a mean? minute, like where- Whiteness ain't hitting. So now that white people are like, where's my where's my 6K salary immediately I've been angry at me with this whole time, I still ain't got shit. Look at that. Straight up. It's like you still, mm -hmm. the, the, the percentages are not looking good for upward mobility for anybody in this country. For Now, <clears throat> is it higher for white folks who are, maybe your parents were wealthy? You have a 42% likelihood of losing that, or 42% likelihood of maintaining that wealth in your generation. Mm -hmm. Even if it's bequeathed upon you, like even you know what I mean, it's just it's just not. But the happen. other fifty eight percent is a likelihood that you're gonna lose that shit this time around, and that is why they'd want you to have babies <laughs> because right. you are too broke to have a child, and that is why you have a cat and a condo that you pay exorbitant amount of rent to, and you're on TikTok all day trying to figure out how to be a six figure boss babe because the jig is up. This system was created to harm you as well. I remember, this might be one of the reasons why I don't work there no more, but I used to work at an independent 
um, a, a PWI as a director of diversity. Ha, scam gig, and, bro. Scam gig, yeah, right? Scam I gig, mean, right? Listen, scam I, gig. Yeah, come on. It was a, <laughs> Anyway, might as well got it from a Nigerian prince. My- <laughs> <Still good>, <laughs> so there was all this stuff that was going around at the time um, where the the white kids had an assumption that they were all full pay students and the black and brown kids were on scholarship. Uh, so just assumptive, assu- assumptive, assumptive logic that led to all manager manages manners of dis, uh, discrimination, flat out racism, um, beef on campus, kids coming in my office crying and shit. Like because full pay was like um, a class up, a class up, a, a leg up above the rest of the kids, and so they would you know discriminate using non racialized terms by referring to somebody as being on scholarship or I'm full pay. So I decided to create a a lesson on the wealth gap to remind all of these motherfuckers that ain't none of y'all living in this city, in this town, in this state, wealthy enough to tell you, your parents ain't got no money. They might have a Mm. little bit of something, but they don't have enough money Mm. for you to find yourself superior Mm. to anybody, bruh. And to be honest Mm. with you, statistically, how it actually breaks down, so few of you that, so few of your families are actually paying full rate tuition that the only the majority of folks who are on full pay, your parents are also on the board. Mm. So How'd that go? Um, it might have not gone well, but I didn't take any like direct shots because of it. But they definitely were like, I mean, I had some meetings after I started giving that lesson. But I just I broke down the the wealth gap, the the wealth mm-hmm. distribution map in the United States of America, and was like, nobody, and I broke it down from a national level and a state level on two graphs to be like, this is, locate yourself. This is where you are. And also if we're talking about race, the demographics, most of the kids who are of color in this school were adopted into families that are non-black. So the the black and brown kids actually are full pay because their white families are prioritizing their education because of the discrimination they would experience in the public school sector. So you're just being flat out fucking racist and calling it something else. And I would like for you to stop. Covert. Yeah, the covert. This is, it's this covert is racism. Age. And the thing about it is that I, I say, like, in, in my compassionate heart for, for children, is that they didn't just fall out of the sky that way. They didn't make that up themselves. This is based off an ideology of what their parents are conditioning them to. Their inheritance. Yeah. They're conditioning them to believe mm-hmm. it. And then they come to school and regurgitate these concepts so that they can, can create little like pockets. And in this same place, this is where <laughs> I guess I could say that, you know, you start to operationalize wokeness um, in the minds of white children when you give them the facts that their grandparents and predecessors do not want them to have because they want them I to think function that's a great in privilege. Point. You know what I mean? The wokeness is the weapon in a sense of like, see how they're fighting ideas? They got to use the full might and force of all their institutions, but to just fight an idea. Yeah. So the dissemination of ideas is really our is what we're doing here. So it's like when we talk about these conversations that we're having, this is the dissemination of ideas. You cannot finance or, or institutionalize shutting this up because it's already out there. You can't criminalize wokeness. No, you can't legislate away wokeness. It is human evolution. And I think one and of the things about it is like- And also shout out to Erica Badu, who's the black woman who came up with the, the, the concept or who, who made the concept something that was even like a mainstream uh, uh, dialectical uh, colloquial 
concept or term. Like we've been saying it in the black community forever, but like this idea of like staying woke, when somebody tells you to stay woke or don't sleep, you know what I mean? Like that's a, that's right. black culture. Well, you think about somebody like Eric Badu or somebody like Lauren Hill, even who has like these tremendous white fan bases who have these tremendous, like the, the, the white woman obsessed with Erica Badu contingent should be a sociological study <laughs> because they really do see themselves in them head wraps. They really, and they identify with her so deeply. And my question to them is, do you support reparations? If not, you don't fuck with her, yeah. bro. And she don't fuck with you. And that's the thing is like, we got to literally, when you talk about white allyship, I think the way you present it is like literal gatekeeping cultural gatekeeping the conversation about reparations has to become on the forefront of cultural like artists and uh, like literally you if you're a fucking big black artist with millions of white fans ask your millions of white fans do they support reparations <laughs> seriously if you're having conversations at like and i need any white person to listen to this thanksgiving is coming up mm. fuck thanksgiving yeah. up by asking the table, well, Uncle Ned, <laughs> do you support reparations or whatever? Seriously, bro, because it's like, it ain't gonna be no comfort. Like, I'm telling you, I myself had to do this on a personal level. I had to provide zero comfort to any white person in my circumference that would not openly and willingly champion reparations. You can't enjoy and dream pop for black people, this whole thing, we put it front and center. Because they, because again, they need us. Yeah. And we must weaponize that utilize that in service of this singular political ask. And I think that that's the thing about this conversation when we talk about allyship, allyship is after the fact, it's you allied because you ain't got a fucking choice. Yeah. You know what I mean? An offer you can't refuse. Well, so, yeah. I don't know. In closing, we usually start with a quote or a poem or something like that, but I think to to navigate away from the, from this particular thing I want to share, Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. Don't let anybody, anybody convince you this is the way the world is and therefore must be. It mm. must be the way it ought to be. Mm. Bars. Bars! I fuck okay. with Morrison so hard. That's my, that's my. Oh my book. gosh. She don't miss. She oh don't miss. Oh God. She don't miss. She don't miss. She don't miss. She don't miss. And on that note, should we not shift to? Da -na -na -na, <laughs> what are you reading? Is that the interlude music to what? What are you reading? I just wrote that. <laughs> mm -hmm. What are you reading <sighs> today? Okay. I, let's work. Let's okay. work on that. Let's um. <laughs> yeah, that was a bop. Was a, that was bop tastic. Um, what am I reading? But yeah, you on some fly shit oh, right man. now? I'm trying to hear about your book. Yo, yeah. so this week I'm reading "How to Go Mad Without Losing Your Mind: Madness mm. and Black Radical Creativity" by Lamar Jarrell Bruce. Couple things. First of all, the cover of the book alone, I want. I need a print on a wall in my house probably in the bathroom um, or like in the hallway. I don't know. It needs to go in like a place where it's like, you're going to see it and stop and look at it for a minute. Cause it's fucking stunning. Yeah. That um, cover is sick. The cover yeah. is sick, but, uh, and also Lamar Jarrell Bruce is like the blackest name ever. And I love it. Um, so yeah. this book, that's why you say the whole thing. Yeah. You got to say it. It's like, what is that? Martin Luther it's, King. Like, <laughs> it's like a pimp, like a pimp named Slickback. 
you know what I mean? A tribe called Quest. Yeah, you gotta Martin say Martin Luther King. Yeah. You gotta say the whole thing. They're not Quest. Yeah. They're a tribe called a tribe Quest. Tribe called Quest, yeah. right. Um, nice. so this book is bending my brain. Um, it gives a, a whole introduction to um mad methodologies, uh kind of like uh, or mad studies similar to like ethnic studies or, or any variation of studies, but this particular mad, studies. mad studies. What is that? Um, well, it takes madness as um, madness as a concept that agitates or animates black radical art making, self-making and world making. And it says that where black folks have been accused of being mad it kind of it, it it's a springboard from from uh from afro pessimism in the sense that mm-hmm. the the anti-blackness that's inherent in cultural production by whiteness especially in the mm-hmm. sci sciences so like psychology psychiatry um etc those ideals about reason and what is reasonable what is mm-hmm. what is um positivist enlightenment rooted concepts of Freudian shit mm-hmm. automatically reduces any creative thought or existence for a black person as something that is other or contradictory to that. So mm. really unpacking the, the, the crazy nigger uh, trope and extrapolating mm. from that to be like, well, what, because what he is, is that free. Mean? Exactly. Um, so it talks about how, you know, there were whole, um, <clears throat> there's types of madness, phenomenal madness, <clears throat> medicalized madness, rage, and psychosocial madness. But um, this idea that all psychiatry is susceptible to the ideology of anti-Blackness. But when we actually look at individuals and study their journey through creativity, are they, are they mad? Or are they mad? Like, are you mad like crazy mm-hmm. mad? Or are you mad like ragey, angry, resistance-oriented mad? Are you mad mm-hmm. like um, just deviating from the norm because the norm wasn't built for you? Are you mad because there's actually a chemical imbalance or something going on on a on on an individual phenomenal way? So like your lived experience and your the interiority of your personhood and self is the thing is is where the madness is taking place. How do we locate it? Um, and then he goes on in the book to like really delve into individuals, creatives throughout history. Um, Lauren Hill, Buddy Bolden, Nina Simone, um, uh, Charles Mingus, um, and more. Thelonious. Thelonious. Monk. Like, yeah. yeah. So, like, they go, he goes through and really um, peels back the layers of their stories. And it's really beautiful because it's like, academic and abstract but also really like narrative and poetic and and prosaic in some places um it calls in a lot of different sources of study i just like i've been thinking about buddy bolden for days now where i'm just like i don't know who buddy bolden is who's buddy Buddy bolden Bolden was a cornet player um from Mm. new orleans who was considered as being the inventor of jazz but his invention of jazz is something that was based that was passed down through oral tradition because there are no documented recordings of his work. But it is said that in New Orleans, Buddy Bolden could be heard standing in the square 
playing his horn and with such such volume and clarity that it would emit a sound for 12 miles out. So um, it takes like the hyperbole of black lore and also to be like, well, how loud was he actually playing his horn? And so this idea right. that um, there was a statement that Buddy Bolden blew his brains out because he was remitted to a mental um, uh, mental hospital where he lived, he languished for 24 years before he died in 1931. Um, and this idea... That just broke my yeah. heart. Yeah. I mean, he was... Mm-hmm. I mean, it was said that he was playing in a parade and walked off the parade line and quote-unquote went mad. And so it is like, it looks at madness as a location or a place, or maybe madness is at the intersection between here and nowhere. Um, it's this just really powerful idea, but it comes up with this idea of the Bolden effect, which is um, the fact that his extraction from community and from his history created like a sonic, mental, physical, and inspirational chasm in the history of Blackness that people then are allowed to fantasize and fabulate into these different locations of how we imagine Buddy Bolden's history, whether or not that's through poetry, um, through memory, through the way that we share stories, even locating Black jazz as a, as a genre and what it's done. And hit for him to have been the, is it the progenitor? Is that the word? Progenitor of, yeah. mm-hmm. of the genre. So he goes on in that, and this is just literally the first two chapters. He goes from Buddy Bolden to Sun Ra and Charles Mingus. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that came up is that Lester Young, Bud Powell, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, Buddy Bolden, Charles Mingus, and Sun Ra were all institutionalized for severe mental illness at some point in their lives. And that's like basically a list of the greatest jazz artists of all time. Basically, like oh, missing a few, they, but yeah, four or five of those are. They were they're referred yeah, to the greatest yeah, of all time. They were they're referred to as the Mad Jasmine. Mm. But when you think about it, during this time in the early 1900s, as jazz was being developed, this is post Reconstruction era you know, into like, well, let's say 1930s and up. So you had like the, um, these, these, this kind of renaissance is taking place in the emergence of jazz music and the impact it was having on white culture and white society, especially white society of women. Um, there's, there's a really um, powerful connection to like these men being incarcerated for being mm-hmm. insane or mentally deficient because of the created the production of their own minds and creativity that was existing in a psychosocial way that was outside of the norms of anything that anyone had ever seen before. So it's still an example of the empire suppressing and repressing repressing the brilliance and extraordinary necessity and impact of the black creative. Yeah. It's so thrilling that it's like just like they arrested they they incarcerated those two brothers in virginia for eight years for wanting to keep their property they incarcerated these men and 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 deemed them schizophrenic 
for their they brilliance. all got most of them were diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia because of their brilliance and then a lot of it was like you know and so this book is blowing my mind i well, love you know it what it makes me um, think of is wilderson in the beginning of afro-pessimism it starts from him losing his mind like he literally had a mental health break but he he had also a psychotic says, break. and yeah. this is something that it makes me think of is that because the formation of the psyche is rooted in the subjugation of black people and blackness is coterminous as slaveness, we are no longer, we don't have to think in terms of sanity because what is considered sane is inherently our subjugation, mm -hmm. is inherently our permanent yeah. exploitation. Therefore, we must yeah. begin to think somewhat insanely or we must begin to think outside. We are no longer restricted by the, the paradigms of normalcy or like, and that's where our solutions lie. But then the third thing it makes me think is that when you think about Charles Mingus, when you think about um, Thelonious Monk, and when you think about Sun Ra, I also think of three people who kind of were overtly very radical. Like maybe not even mm -hmm. politically in a sense of like, but like subconsciously are like in a political sense by their art, by their, their revolutionary approach to art, artistry, it was black liberation in artistic form and something that had to be tamped down. So when black people go quote unquote mm -hmm. mad or black people, it's really when they free themselves from the constraints that the white world has tried to, or the non-black world has tried to juxtapose upon them about how they should think. And when they see, so like, that's, mm -hmm. that's just to say like, it could happen to me. It could happen to you. We yeah. really get to start yeah. touching the precipice of, of liberative thought and theology and, and, and text or whatever. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, Ebony done lost her mind. Ebony, you know what I mean? And, and then it'll be yeah, other niggas I mean, like, oh, we're going to report her, commit her. I mean, I really do think, I, I think about that, Yona, so much when we're working on this mm -hmm. podcast about how I'm expressing anger, um, how my passion and fervent beliefs translate as, as rage or anger or how that might be misconstrued or how even having agency about my anger or my madness or my right to be mad about anything that I deem maddening, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And like how that comes with like a special dance that, um, that black women and black people have to do in order to maintain the comfort of folks. So even when I share podcast episodes with people, I've been real quiet about I know, telling me too. people that we even yeah, started a podcast. Cause I don't want um, them to call me crazy. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you was okay. Nah, you fucking, you could like, uh, we're, these nice men are going to take you somewhere yeah. nice. I want to read a sentence you wrote actually though. <laughs> They're dressed in white, just like you, Ebony. <laughs> uh, I want to read something you wrote that I actually... We have long threads. One of them is when you teach me about all waves of feminism, but um, and you're like, <laughs> why do you make me do the fuck this tweet that I started this? But I appreciate it. It really helped me out. Because uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I got to be put on. Okay, so you wrote um, in your writing that you actually, I should get on Ebony, the Ebony Imago, the Substack, because, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the pen is in this motherfucker. The pen is right here with you, Listen. right here with me. She All right. right. So you say, she right. I really like the sentence. The maddening of black women 
is never given as much visibility as attention is given to the perception of our anger. So in that sense, when you talk about it, it's like, if a black woman is legitimately angry, that's not the concern. The concern is if she behaves in that anger, because then she is a threat to herself and others. And it's, and it's this paradigm. It's an impossible, it's an impossible space to be in. So like when you, I remember, so I had an issue once where I was, I experienced domestic violence um, and, you know, had to seek recourse in various ways um, while also trying not to, you know, put the police on a black man. I know. Impossible situations. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and as I'm navigating that and trying to find security in community and through my family and like still doing all this work to create a buffer around myself that also kept other people around me safe. Um, people kept asking me what happened. Um, and then they would say, well, what did you do? Like, what did you do to make him mad? What did you do to make him mad? or to make him that mad, right? Mm -hmm. That question is not afforded to me. When I What did you do to Ebony to make Ebony that mad? Nobody ever asks Mm -hmm. that question. They just be like, why are you Mm -hmm. so mad? Mm -hmm. Why are you angry? The angry black woman, oh my God, you're intimidating. Mm. Could you not, it's a little, it's like, it's not professional. It's, you know what I mean? It's. Uh, you're so confrontational. You're There's aggressive. There's this artist named Kara Jackson. Nobody's She's... thinking about the fact that I got driven to that. What has been happening to me over the course of my life or the past 30 seconds before you witnessed me, just observed me from your gaze, mm-hmm. What you, you have no curiosity about what the precursor was to this moment where you observed me because your expectation is, once your eyes land on me, you should be able to create an assessment about your own safety instead of having a, th- a fuck to give the about Black mine. It's, yeah. that's Yeah, Ebony the Ebony Imago. Imago. yeah. That's and the, I think what's interesting the, the is that term intimidating, how that is a term of inoculation for a Black woman. Oh, like, yeah. like it's one of those phrases where on its, on its face, it's supposed to be a compliment, but it's really just saying, I cannot connect to you human like there's a like i said there's this artist named cara jackson cara jackson who has a line everybody i've ever dated has told me i'm intimidating and i think um when you talk about black men being or black women being referred to as intimidating it's a dehumanizing tactic by definition and it's this dehumanizing tactic that uh, so much of like what i say covert racism is these lines and these tactics being you like like the the we're full pay your scholarship covert racism we have to come up with but it's the same predicament and and i really do believe that the fundamental nature of subjugation when we talk about black women is this distortion of what we will allow black women to be and still love them it's like we will cease to love black women if they step outside of this square and I think that the, the most mm. the most powerful manifestation of that is, like I said, in gender wars, when you have these quote unquote black men and black women arguing on Twitter or whatever. And it's like you can see the ways that black men have been made white 
with ideals of capitalism mm. and patriarchy that they then look at their mm -hmm. black women with through these lens and it's breeding farm affections in real time. Yeah. And like when you think, when you really get yeah. to breaking it down, like, and then this actually could lead to the next thing or the book that, no, I'm not reading a book, but what I did read this week based off Charles Mingus's, um, you know, the name of his play is written by Hortense Spillers. It's this essay that you gave me that um, mm -hmm. is called All the Things You Could Be By Now If so Sigmund Freud's Wife Was Your Mother. That's the name of a Charles Mingus mm -hmm. uh, essay, but also it's the name, or a song, a song, but it's also the name of this Hortense Spiller essay. But the crux of the essay is that modern psychology is insufficient for black people. The crux of it is that we cannot approach the ideals inherent to African people with European ideals, which is to say like when they were analyzed, and this was broken down in the Oedipal complex, which is, you know, obviously the story of Oedipus is the, the, the Greek man who marries his wife and kills his father in this sort of roundabout way. Mm -hmm. But the Oedipal complex, as I understand it, is just implying how young men find their place in the world. And mm. as in Africa, it's a completely different Oedipal complex based on the sociological structure and standards in, in you know, traditional African societies, not ones totally fucking cannibalized by missionaries and shit, but just traditional African spirituality and, and their standards of what an Oedipal complex allows as opposed to the Western or the Greek notion, which is literal cannibalization of one's elders and the marrying of your wife. That's the edible complex in Western society. In, in the edible complex in- The marrying of your mother. The marrying of your mother. The marrying of your wife or marrying yeah, of your marrying mother? Marrying of your mother, yeah, making okay. your mother your wife. So, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. This is yeah. just my understanding again. I can only speak from my understanding, no, but uh, so, you know, somebody listen, else can read Walton Spiller's no. essay and be like, yo, you got it all wrong, which I would, I would love to have a conversation, uh, but listen, I appreciate, I appreciate your interpretation of it's this. My interpretation. I also think that it's, I know I, I appreciate this interpretation and I think it's spot on. Also the Charles Mingus piece. He wrote three days after checking himself into Bellevue because he had, he was suffering from severe insomnia and was immediately offered a lobotomy mm. by a German eugenist uh, doctor who was likely, a a, a, well, likely a Nazi, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, that's up for debate, but he refers to him as such. So Mingus writes this, all the things you could be by now if Sigmund Freud's that this piece was was part of his the creativity of his madness that was actually produced in 1959 so when spillers takes this idea or this essay brings it full circle it's also really enlivened to a previous essay that she wrote um mama's baby papa's maybe mm. where it's like if you marry your mother you ensure your identity, but the the relationship to the father is, you know, which kind of deals with young black boys and and single mother households and that sort of thing. See the edible yeah. complex, and then the, yeah. how does how do young black yeah. people find their way in the world? And the argument essentially presents itself that modern psychology, Sigmund Freud's wife, is ill equipped. It's ill equipped 
because mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is these values are not inherent to us. They're juxtaposed upon us, which again leads me to my previous thing mm -hmm. of like the worst thing in the world you could have happen is black people being made white and to be being treated as such. Yeah, we, don't we don't want, want that. that because at the end of the day, this shit is But wrong. the best thing, mm -hmm. the best thing that you could have happen is having black people be made mm -hmm. whole. That, that is the is best, the best thing. scenario. Wrong dub word. Wrong dub H word. Wrong W H yeah, word. Right. Not white. Whole. So we don't want to whole. That's yeah. the goal. <laughs> That's what we're going for. But I really appreciate that. Also, I got to go back to this Spillers essay. Yeah, I want to also context. just applaud you because it's, it's, it's tough dense reading. AF. That's like, a book. I, I read a book. It's, it's 25 pages, but it's a fucking book. Let me tell you, I had this <laughs> and I would literally have to stop Look up this word. Stop. Look up this word. It took me that long, but I was like, yeah. yo, I got to do this. Because I, I do think when we talk about revolution, it's an intellectual endeavor. And the the vociferous, like we were talking about this the other day, and we, me and Ebony talk all the time. This is my fucking bestie, right? So we talk all the time, right? <laughs> and so text, phone calls, whatever. Y'all get 2% of this, okay? We, got, we be going off. But vociferous reading reading comprehension it's literally life and death it is literally life and death so the, the, you get presented with information if you don't consume it it is a form of death it is a subtle slow death so ebony's like you got to read this i got to read this i talked to her i was like yo i just read afro pessimism you got to read she read afro pessimism you know what i mean and and because of this this is what we talk about with the cohort building. This is what we talk about with um, the revolutionary intellectual endeavor and iron sharpens iron. It's like, you know, you want to join the Black Panthers. First thing they give you is a stack of fucking books, bro. You know what I mean? You want to get down. You got to read, bro. And that's what I be saying. Like the, 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 the key between black people receiving reparations and not is how politically conscious are we collectively? How, and, and that is really... Truly, like, I don't let up on niggas, bro. I'd be like, you got to read. You got to read. You got to read. I have to hit my friends up. Get this book. Get this book. And then they talk to me about all this shit. I'd be like, yeah, but did you read the book? You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm like, mm -hmm. otherwise, we ain't got shit to talk about, bro. Because here's the truth of the matter. Yeah. I'm changed now. I have read this book. I have consumed this information. I have leveled up. I have grown. Come here with me. Mm -hmm. If you choose not to come with me, you stay in there. You know what I mean? And it's so it's it's this real shit about like like you you the book. So we do this shit when we talk about what are you reading right now? Because this is the most important aspect of all of this. Is what are we doing yeah. on our off time when before we come here and we're fucking reading, bro? Yeah, I mean like reading, listening. I I posted the other day on Threads like I don't um it, I'm not a lurker. I just have excellent reading and comprehension mm -hmm. skills. Because I think a lot of times folks are just kind of shooting off responses for it's like, I don't know, for reactions or, um, you know, this attempt at virality or whatever is happening. But I, I think it's like really reading. I'm curious about the context of what is written. You know what I mean? I think so. Yeah. I, being a voracious reader is something that um, is a. Hmm. Okay here's what's coming up for me around that, that I noticed about mm -hmm. myself. It requires discipline and I get it. Like people say, I've heard people talk about, especially people who are in different aspects of media talk about um, 
literacy as a thing that is, you know, like not a, niggas ain't reading books no more. Nobody reads anymore. We watch videos or we learn everything on YouTube <laughs> university or whatever. And I, I, I get that. And I think that there's a certain level, level of discipline that is required to mm. read. Um, I know also that that skill set was not one that is made readily available. I think that our relationship to literacy, especially as Black people in this country or um, minorities in this country, or well, people of color um, in this country, non-white folks, if you will, that's also a part of the the the, the necessity for reparations is because of the ways that systemic and structural racism have influence our ability to access menticide the menticidal Um, elements yeah it's it's a part Mm -hmm. of that menticide so i i don't want to use literacy without naming that there's a certain level of like an elitist yeah level Mm -hmm. of like i know what you you know what i mean so so i do want to touch on that like if you are not you're like oh i just can't i'm not a reader i don't like to read okay fine but there are other ways that you can access information one is by listening to this podcast you can listen to books on tape i've been listening to um, books on tape are fresh they're dope here is here to equality you can listen to those on youtube so there are ways that you can access information you can read articles or read the cliffs notes of things just to get a concept for it, but it requires a certain level of discipline. And here is a part that I will bring in to tie in like this healing and self authentication component as it relates to discipline. I have noticed at this point on my healing journey that when I read, I am able to focus more because I am sober. First of all, secondly, the voice that I hear my internal dialogue the voice is my mm. own for mm. once for and this is kind of a nascent reality my internal voice for a long time used to sound like somebody mm. else it would sound like i would have a thought and hear it in the voice of an ex hmm. a former school yeah, teacher yeah i know what you mean my mm-hmm. mama um you know what i mean the invisible voice of whatever your internal dialogue monster sounds like whatever part is speaking to me or to you, if that voice doesn't sound like your own, somehow your relationship to your own inner authority, I would offer, may be misaligned in such a way that you're oppositionally defiant mm. to what that voice is calling you to do mm-hmm. and be, mm-hmm. right? So That's what that is. Internal That's resistance. what that is. Well, I'm just not a reader. You don't want to hear yeah. your voice talking in your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there's some internal resist- resistance to, and so I'm curious about getting to a place where it's like, but what is that? So what? And for folks who are motor, uh, motivated to read, to consume, to like speed read, and like take all the tests and get all the accolades and do all the things, like I'm also curious about That's that the motivation. Pendulum. Like, yeah, right, that's the other who, side. Yeah, yeah, like what voice is that? But it, it has been really. Um, I just want to like celebrate myself for <laughs> I pat my own self on the back for being like, I am really out here, like continuing self-study and self-authentication without the motivation of achieving a degree for the purpose of getting a job to make my white boss feel like I'm worthy of getting right. a mm-hmm. raise so that I can go buy a house at this hella high interest rate. Like those are not the reasons not that to I'm be doing made this. white. I'm doing this so that I can not to be made white, but to liberate mm-hmm. myself, to, to be, be made, made whole. free. So part of my, own responsibility absolutely to be made whole so my responsibility or the accountability that i think we take in our relationship 
on this podcast in our lives is to really be accountable to myself first to honor and respect my own inner authority that you know is speaking through my intuition to keep me aligned mind body and soul with what my purpose and my work here is on this earth and if i feel good about sitting on you know sitting on the, um, in my comfy chair for an afternoon and reading a book i have the peace of mind p e a c e of mind to be able to do that in a way that is really thoroughly enjoyable and rewarding. So there is a benefit to liberation that is not about monetary gain. It's not about capitalism. It is about it's liberation. It's the cure fermenticide. The, it is the cure mm-hmm. fermenticide. It is the, the salve for the maddening of the Black radical creative is to have time to sit and think. And so with that, I want to take us to a near close by talking about it ain't oh, that you deep. Got one? Okay, and what let's is, go. What it what ain't that deep this week? So Andre three thousand uh-huh. releases his first solo studio album in seventeen years. Mm-hmm. It's called New Blue Sun. Mm-hmm. It is entirely instrumental mm-hmm. flute music. Mm-hmm. All of the sounds on this project are made with air, with breath. I was very excited to hear this. Now for years we've been seeing, we've been seeing three stacks meander around Japan and all other parts of the world with this flute, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm, listen, I'm here for it. Andre 3000 could, you know, sing Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care. And I would be like, yes, go ahead, do it. So it ain't that deep. right? You know what I mean? He drops an album. It's all flute music. He's been playing the fruit flute. He's very wealthy. Like he can do whatever the fuck he wants to do. It's fine, mm-hmm. right? But is it? Is it deep though? And I have an analysis of the significance of this work that I feel like is very deep. But before I share that, I want to ask you: mm-hmm. Have you listened to no. it? <laughs> I am not. <laughs> Tell me why. Um, tell me people. Uh, tell me people. Sing your um, shame, young man. Um, yeah. yeah. Let me tell you something, bro. Why not? Um, on its face, it's an unappetizing proposition. Okay. Like, I'm not into flute music. I'm not into jazz. I'm not into... It's not, it's not a refutation of this man doing it. It's not, you should be rapping. If he made the kind of music I wanted to listen to, I'd be like, and it wasn't a rap album, but it was a different, but that would be an effort that I would only undertake off of what I've amounted, which I said, I will do it. You know, uh, just give me, you know what I mean? Because you, you implore me to do so. If you, if I didn't have the Ebony Imago imploring me to listen to this, I would <laughs> never, ever listen. Okay, and because on its face, I'm not interested in electronic flute music, jazz, experimental shit. I'm just not. And it's like, and and even if it's it, it could be Jesus H Christ dropped an album. You know what I mean? You gotta hear that. What kind of album is it? It's instrumental flute music. Uh, I'll get to it. It's really that simple, bro. So it's not no shots to the boy, you know, because I love him too. But at the end of the day, man, it's just like. I trust you. 
You say, you got to listen to this. I'm going to listen to it. I looked at it. The last song is like 17 minutes. I'm like, oh, Lord, I love this woman so much, bro. Because, <laughs> yo, what? <laughs> yo, what? No, I said I would. <laughs> I didn't say, and I promised yesterday, but I lied. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> okay. Now what? Now let's deal with that fallout. I said I would. I didn't. Okay. <laughs> okay. I will okay. though. Monday. All right. I will. I was. I will. I, I want to hear it. you speak on it because her. you know that's what we're here for. So, I curiosity led me to listen to it, and so I put it on to go on my morning walk, mm-hmm. and. I thought instantly about all of the times in my meditative healing journey where I have, you know, done everything from like listening to brown noise to binaural beats to metaphysical sounds where I've been like spiritually assaulted during a sound bath that was hella problematic. What, what? You, you know, don't have to tell us about that, yeah. but I'll let you. I'll okay. tell the sound bath. I'll tell the sound bath story another okay. time because we run in okay. long. We gotta get out of okay. here. I'm saving the sound okay. bath story. But I have had um there are so many ways that sound has been co-opted and made white and then reversed and like shoved back forward to be like this is how you heal you have to listen this is what you listen to in yoga class or whatever in like the sonic reality like i remember like booty yoga where it's like trap music that's playing in the background but there's like a white girl that's teaching the class and i'm like this none of this feels like alignment and it all feels culturally wrong right mm-hmm. there are so many countless times where my self study my healing journey my internal um reality has been set to a soundtrack that is not for me. Mm-hmm. I would even go so far as to say, do you remember when RZA had re- dropped the meditation, the meditation album? Yeah, album? and you talking like this, dude. You got to do this. Uh-uh. Yeah. I'm like, I am not relaxed. I appreciate <laughs> <I'm> relaxed. it. <laughs> I'm in the bodega. Get me the fuck out of here. Fuck? <laughs> breathe calmly. And, I, and then you got to breathe yeah. calmly. Like, I was like, shut up. Yeah. You're interrupting my meditation. Like, stop. stop. Um, yeah. So I didn't I didn't like that either. Mm-hmm. This album was not that. Oh. This album on a on a level of like my nervous system responded to the sounds in a way that felt naturally and authentically meditative. It did not feel like a co-optation of culture. It d- did not feel foreign to me. It didn't really feel like jazz. Um, it was, it was more soothing than like an Alice Coltrane. Because um, I, I mean, like I listen, Journey to Sakuja. Uh, I'm a mispronounce it, but Alice Coltrane. Yeah, I know the one you're I talking about. Yeah. Studies studied in music and things like that. Like this was really beautiful in a way that allowed me to ground and be present and read and journal and focus oh. while it was happening in the background. Is it something that you should like bump while you work out? Absolutely not. But it not. has utilitarian value. It has a very specific and beautiful utilitarian value that did something that delivered a piece to my soul that I love and something that I would like to see 
I think it's really essential that it came from a 48 year old black man. Mm. Yeah. And that um, it's for black people I in think, that sense, perhaps. And that it's for black people. Mm. And I, I see this as being an invitation to grounding and relaxation for black men that um, is, is never offered. It's just never offered. It doesn't exist. Mm. I don't I, for our generation culturally what Andre 3000 has done with this he project could have opened, he is, can open up he's opened up a new lane potential new lane it's, for it's unprecedented right. yeah no. it's unprecedented mm -hmm. for all the healing girlies for all the crystal girlies the incense burning the you know what I mean like the people who are like oh yeah I meditate on an app for five minutes every morning while I'm making my coffee mm -hmm. it's like okay and if I'm not knocking your rituals mm -hmm. like but this album gives you a timed, focused invitation to self in a way that is by and for Black people. Mm. And that shit is important. It matters. I pre-ordered the album and I don't even have a record player. But I want to document the existence of this for our generation in a way that... Yeah, I pre-ordered the vinyl. So real for that, huh? 80 bucks. Whoa! But I did it. Yeah, that's expensive. Yeah, it's vinyl. not cheap. It's not cheap. It expensive, expensive vinyl. No, but no, nah, I, I, I see that the historical content, the historical value, and and I think too is it's like this is a man who the whole world uh, desperately wants to hear from in a certain mm -hmm. way, and for him to say, "Well, I can't talk to you in that way. I can only talk to you in this way." That's also really powerful because, you know, I think at the end of the day, like even me personally, is it's like the the expectations of one's art have nothing to do with one's art and if you can mm. learn that you can have a lifetime of music making but if yeah. you force yourself to fit inside of other people's context for your work it'll nip it in the butt, you know? So you got to do if, yeah. if, if, and like for me personally, you know, like, you know, I was like, I'm making this kind of music now. I'm not rapping no more. You know what I mean? I'm doing what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of people were like, Oh, it sounds like you people like, you know, either the interview, I don't got bars like that. A lot of people have sent me that clip and they'd be like, Oh, that sounds like you or whatever. And it's like, you really can't force it, bro. But it's like, it's a, it obviously it's a, it's a matter of scale. When somebody as big as him, who I think universally, he's one of the people I think are universally considered one of the best rappers a lot. You know, so for him to say, I don't care about that. I'm not rapping. That's another thing black men need to see. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because the, the like when you talk about black liberation, I think there's the political aspect. And I do believe there's the personal aspect. And when you talk about the personal aspect, I I'm now I'm kind of influenced by the it's it's quite, quote unquote, considered going mad. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? When a black person frees, and he's always been somebody who's been like, nah, I'm doing this. I'm dressing like this. I'm seeing, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And always niggas, oh, you know, remember, you know, that verse on Return of the Gangster, you know, is he, is he on drugs? Is he gay? Is he gay? You know what I mean? And it's like, mm -hmm. it's like, he hears it, but he really cannot, yeah. he must be him. And I think if a lot yeah. more black men were like, I know what y'all want me to be, but I gotta be me. Yeah, there would be a degree of liberation Absolutely. at play. So, you know, so I'm just saying, like, add add new blue sun to your um, to your healing repertoire. I'll be meditating. Um, I, can, I can throw it on, you know, but more importantly is it's like it's, it's it's I think it's the similar thing of 
it's cultural. If I say, you got to read this, you read it. You say, you got to listen to this, you listen. And blah, blah, blah. Because our exchange is revolutionary work. And revolutionary work is art. Revolutionary work is reading. Revolutionary work is writing. But it's it's yeah. community. So it's like, I have this. I got to share. Yeah. And I need you to listen to this, Jonas. I need you to listen to this, Ebony. I need, you know what I mean? I need you to read this. So we can talk about it. So we can commune yeah. over it, you know? So yeah. that, I, it's, I mean, all of this... All of this is is to be in. It's all in dialogue. It's dialogue, all yeah. in dialectical. Um, yeah, there's this discourse that we're engaging in, even with like, you know, from the conversation about Black liberation to how to the the books that we're using to kind of like leapfrog or into different areas of discussion, but they're all, you know, Hortense Spillers and Sadia. Um, Hartman yeah. are are throughout all of this text, right? right that yeah. we're reading. So then we come across Frank Wilderson with um, nods to Fred Moten, Fred Moten and Spillers, which then leads to Bruce's work that also references Spillers, and which brings us to Charles Mingus, who wrote this piece that ties back to the Spillers essay that wasn't even cited there. But oh, and then because Spillers wrote, um, you know. Um, Mama's Baby and Papa's Maybe, which also ties back into this conversation about Black feminism, which relates to the manosphere in the way that these niggas are out here talking about, like, well, my mama did work three jobs and took care of me, so why can't you? You know what I mean? Like, this is, and you know, which are my things that go bump in the night, which makes me not really, makes me more cautious about, you know, Kenyatta Diallo's work. You know what I mean? So like, who's also... We're all, but it, but, but we're, it's all this production um, of create. We're creating culture. Yeah, you know what I mean. And we're participating in it in a way that is like not bypassing, but really confrontational and um, and supportive. And I think we of, made an emphasis on feeling. building on the work of our predecessors, our ancestors. You know what I mean. Yeah. And and being in yeah. constant reference and communication with them. To, to to analyze to, dis, to dismantle for whatever reason, but it would be a fool's errand to not enter into this magnanimous task, standing on the shoulders of literal giants, mm-hmm. and that's what Absolutely. they've afforded us the opportunity to do with their books, with their albums, and that's what we seek to do, contributing to this long dialectical, this long dialogue, this long contribution that you can only hope to contribute to. You know, I, I want to. We, we can wrap it up, but I, I want to talk about how you, the bell hooks thing. I read this tweet about bell hooks where she said some shit that I considered to be questionable. And I was kind of freaking out. I was like, this is my man. What, what's going on here? What's she and you kind of put it in context for me. You're like, yo, we are allowed to grow. That's what she said then. And if you read later stuff, but it's, this is a process. So this notion somehow that your previous stance negates your later stances is antithetical to the idea of living in any sort of chronological order, you know? So, so you like, you really got to give everybody the grace of what they have contributed and take from it what they've given you and, and then contribute your own. You're not supposed to take any of this stuff wholesale, full sale, and just regurgitate it. We're supposed mm-hmm. to consume it, process it, and make it ourselves, whether that be Kenyatta or whether that be Spillers or Wilderson, Afropath, you know, anything. It's all building the amalgamation that is who we are that we then contribute to the next person. Yeah. If we waited, if we resisted publication or writing until we had perfect 
theorems that would be irrefutable that nobody would disagree with, nothing would ever be written. Would ever be written. Nothing would be written. Mm-hmm. Nothing would be produced. So, be you know, I, yeah. I appreciate that. I love you, brother. Um, I love you too. This has been a great episode of yeah. What Would It Look Like? A Black Liberation Podcast. Tell a friend. Um, listen, you might have to take it in two doses. We're not going to split the episode up because it was, you know, what needed to happen. I don't want to give you little shit. You know what I mean? We, we do big shit. <laughs> we yeah, do big shit. You know big, what I mean? It's a big conversation. I'm not sure that it's we a big conversation. You know what I mean? I've had people be yeah. like, it's too long. Okay, break it up. I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? We're not shortening it. I'm not. I don't want it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> two and a half hours. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. It's perfect. Listen, I have listened to two and a half hour long episodes of The Read on more than one occasion. And if I can sit and do nothing. that then we can, yeah. it might take two hours to talk about reparations, but I feel like I said everything that I needed to say and we'll continue my yeah. study. We'll put the um, books and resources and links in the episode notes. And put your um, sub stack in there too. Put your sub stack I, in there. I'm trying to tell I, you all the writings. Psh, I can't wait for the next episode. Do you feel me? I know. We're going to try to get those out on Fridays. Um, okay. So I'm okay. making a commitment okay. to release those on Fridays without putting Please too much do, because on it was a great read. I, I, I really loved it and I just want to read more. You know what I mean? Thank you. I'm excited yeah, sure. about it. Yeah, you should get yeah. it while it's free, folks. Because yeah. you know, once I get it ramped up, we're gonna see how you all can make contributions to continue the support. Because we are doing this for free, and at the very least, you know, um, some book sponsorships would be great. Because it's like, oh, you should read this, and then I look for it, and there's some of the stuff we read that really don't be at the library. I'm not gonna lie. And it'd um, be expensive. It'd be expensive. <laughs> I'm reading myself out of house on. <laughs> if you love me buy me books buy me if you love me buy me books all right i put my list in there all right right, y'all take care be good uh i'll talk to you later all right love you bro love you bye